the spook who sat by the door. The controversial best-selling novel now becomes a shocking screen reality. The story of the first black agent in the CIA. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. For five years, he was their token Negro. He kept his cool and let himself be used. And in return, they taught him how to spy, how to fight, and how to kill. For five years, he was the spook who sat by the door. And then, he turned the American dream into a nightmare. This is not about hate white folks. It's about love and freedom enough to die or kill for it if necessary. The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Have a seat. Yes. Take those shoes off. <laughs> um, it's another exciting, enthralling, and philanthropic episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Yeah. It's proceeds. Yeah. Well, it's, all, it's completely... <laughs> it's, we're, we're, this is for the, the, uh, the Jimmy Fund or one of those various... You know, if we ever make a profit. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll give it if all If we ever charity. get to a point where it doesn't cost us money to do the show. Yeah. Then we'll start giving money. Away, we'll give so. the money to profit. Then we just break even. But right. hey, it's a late Saturday night. We're here again. Uh, we are here again. It's uh, we're, we're in Blake's uh, uh, parents' basement now. <laughs> it's a little, yeah, it's a little didn't a little noisier compared to your basement yeah. <laughs> where we've been yeah. doing it. We're, we're <laughs> about six inches away from his. Uh, <laughs> From his his parents' uh, furnished the boiler, <laughs> so it's, it gets a little hot. It's not furnished, yeah. so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a little it's echo. It's a little more echo. Yeah, and the, and the uh, asbestos-covered pipes are to bear, and uh, there's a lot of cobwebs, and you might hear the boiler click on. You know, to keep this everything, get the water heater going. You know, machinery may turn on and off at will at points. No, this one was the decision today for this movie was. It was a little like almost last minute because we actually did another one. We did do another one. So when you hear the next week's next episode, yeah, two weeks from now, and we keep talking about what happened last episode, yeah, they, they we were not talking about this episode. No, this, <laughs> this one we snuck in. We, we're talking about we we snuck uh we snuck that, that uh, this bad boy in out of pure because I it dawned on me I don't know why, <laughs> but you know we're always doing holiday stuff. So well, you know we like to you know I I don't think it's. Uh, I think it was a good gut gut reaction. We do like to try to line up things with holidays or events, like you know when X Files came on. Yeah, obviously not a holiday, but we you know we try Should to pick be. We try <laughs> <laughs> season premiere day for yeah for X Files of all things. Happy X Files premiere. Yeah, but somebody <laughs> already lobbied for the Love Boat premiere day, so it's like Jesus. How many premiere days are we gonna have? But uh, you know we do Christmas. We did a whole month of stuff for. Halloween. Yeah, we've done. Uh, I think we've done other things. We didn't do anything for St. Valentine's for Day. summers. For the summer, like we try to do summery stuff. Yeah, fall and all. We that kind of mistakenly we tried when we did B- weekend of Bernie's. We were trying to do a Memorial Day or whatever. Yeah, but we found out a, a, a Labor Day <laughs> cast, so we bookended the entire spectrum. And then so we did something. So um, St. Patty's Day was coming up, and we you and know, we've often talked about doing 
Dario Gill and the Little People. And we've had requests to do Darby Gill and the Little and People. And I'm the first person who's going to tell you we should do Darby Gill and the Little People. But we've been doing, coincidentally, we've been doing a lot of Disney lately, or Disney-related stuff, which yeah. isn't a bad thing. I love myself some Disney. But, um, you know, we can always keep Darby in our pocket for uh, next go-around. Because he's tiny. He's a little guy. <laughs> well, Darby himself isn't, but uh, King O'Brien is. Um, so, you know, in the pantheon of St. Patrick's Day movies, there's not a lot of them. And, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's I'm not sure there's, other, I mean, there's God Told Me Too. There's a scene there at the yeah. beginning of that. Where Which, when you said this, I was going to say, well, we could do God Told Me Too, but and then, uh, I figure we'll do that on another thing, St. Patrick's, Patrick's Day. Day. See, we've already got like two or three years <laughs> lined up now. And uh, this is, I always remember, because this, the, the climax of this movie, the ending, takes place during the parade. And I always found it to be cool. So I was like, hey, why don't we do this? Um, because I feel like it's a forgotten little, little film. nugget of film yeah. of cinema. Of cinema goodness. Um, so we're doing uh, 1990. State of Grace. State of Grace. Yeah. I hope everyone knows it. I'm sure people know it. It's, a, it's another, uh, it's, we keep doing these, these big casts. I mean, this cast isn't big, but everybody in it you know, <coughs> which is pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's an all-star cast. Yeah. For sure. and, and spoiler alert, next week's podcast I was going to be for this week is another freaking you know pulling out all the doors it's like we're just going back semi related yeah we're doing similar subject (laughs) yeah and we're doing uh and it's not 10 commandments so it's not like we're doing like a a sand uh, a sword and sandals movie where you have everybody from uh being loaned out to Cecil B. DeMille but uh yeah uh State of Grace from 1990 this brought me back watching this brought me back to our youth to our, our our eclectic youth and you think about all these there seemed to be a time in the 90s, well, this is 1990, but I still feel like it has heavy 80s uh, overtones because, like we always say, that the decade always bleeds into the next decade. Yeah. But this made me reminisce about all those, you know, back when crime, and this is also our first kind of crime gangster film, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because we haven't done yet one yet, but this reminded me of all, like, the B pictures that were very good that a lot of people didn't know, you know, if they, they came and went or, you know, uh, they were staples at the video store. And then it's kind of before gangster films, to me, got cliched. Like, by the end of the 90s, I mean, for me, right around Donnie Brasco, it's just like everybody, you know, they were just uh, carbon copies of each other. And just, you know, just every time you make a copy, he's just getting, you know, <laughs> it's getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, he still gets some good ones. Yeah. No, you're right. But, I, but it seemed like... You know, uh, right before The Sopranos hit, everybody wanted to do the gangster movies because Casino was big, Goodfellas was big. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other ones. But it, this just made me think of all those other lesser-known either New York City crime movies or police movies or this era of stuff. And it was just thinking about in the cast in this, you know, it was very... Well, you know, this is, will be an interesting episode of our show. I mean, we've done... I'm trying to think. We've done episode. We've already done... We've done... Uh, podcasts or episodes, however you want to say, uh, where like you've seen one and I haven't seen one, or yeah. I've seen it and you haven't seen it. So that's not new, but this is um, it's it's it will be an interesting podcast because it's I feel like it's if you were to look at all the movies we've done so far, like this is the one that's not like the others. Yeah, you know, it's it's something in the you know in terms of like a behind the scenes thing for the viewer. For the it, listener, for the, I mean, for the li- for the <laughs> listener, for you listening, um, and it's gotten less so, but there was often a lot of discussion about uh, between Dion and I, and less about what movies we're going to cover, but oddly enough, more about the shit that we talk about on the Facebook page, 
and I, I'll, I'll admit that it's mostly instigated by like me and my like obsessive, <laughs> like compulsive personality when I get into something. But there was also there's always this discussion of like, well, what really constitutes like a sleepover movie? And uh, and you know that's the thing is that there's no real definition for it. It's it's uh, it's a feeling thing, and often uh, you know we don't necessarily feel the same way about things about what constitutes a sleepover movie, but we do. You know, my opinion, a lot of some of the stuff we've done, I wouldn't necessarily consider that. For me, it's like about like fun. And there's not really anything fun about this movie. No, it's not. But it's, you know, so I think that's just like a little interesting kind of tidbit about what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so, and, and then we put on top of that, like, that oddly enough, this is a movie that just like completely eluded me and I haven't seen till now. Yeah. Um, have you always known about it? Uh, you know, you probably, and I wish I could remember the movie, because this was a movie that you always wanted me to watch when we originally met in 97. I was pushing it back then? You were pushing it back then. <clears throat> and I discovered some movie that I really liked, and I was like, oh, you should watch this. And I remember, because it was like, at the end of the year. Yeah. And you're like, well, when you watch State of Grace... I'll watch this other movie. Did I ever end up watching that other movie? <laughs> I don't even remember what it was. I wish I could remember. So I'm like, okay, now, yeah, now you need to watch <laughs> that. Right other. now, this is, you're throwing it down. You're throwing the gauntlet down. But I don't even remember. I don't remember what that movie was now. So this was a movie that, like, I think, you, you know, you kind of, like, the notion of it, the title, what it was, was something that you introduced to me. And then for whatever reason, it's just I never got around to it. There's, there's thousands of movies I've never got around to. Some of them I'm actually embarrassed. You know, I think it has, it has a little bit to do with, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about it a little bit in the Tombstone podcast that we did is that one of the things that why we became, like, really close friends kind of uh, very quickly was because we had a lot of similar tastes in things like music and movies – and but I don't know. For me, like there was a very big transmor- uh, transformative like thing going on when we first met when, I, when we got to film school, and uh, I stepped. I stopped like being as into the kind of things as I was into when I was in high school, um, and when we first met. So, had I watched it then, I don't know if I would have been as. Uh, Receptive, yeah, as like receptive to it. As I like think, yeah, because you and I both had, we both grew up, I guess, people of our era, which is even weird to sound <laughs> or to say. <laughs> Back that, you in know, our day, you know, we, we we grew up liking gangster pictures; they were huge at the time. But I know when we got to college, you went the way of horror, and it wasn't like you disavowed that. Yeah, kind of just, just I had like other interests, and also when you're young, I mean, we were young. I mean, we were fucking still teenagers. Yeah, you know, so it was like. Uh, it wasn't so much of like, like you said, like disavowing, but it was a lot of like, I feel like a, a stupid, like, ignorant, immature, like. Uh, there was a little bit of that, like rejecting, yeah, things. You know, when you when you're young, you kind of feel like you know what's going on, and you really don't. Yeah, <laughs> and and so even like when we um, when we talk about uh, when we did the 
Mad Love podcast. Yeah. We talked about like. That's like the fourth time we've brought that up this year. We, oh, yeah, it's a great podcast. People got to go listen to it. That's our <laughs> earliest pod. I mean, our. We our, start talking about like old horror and what's the movie that ushers in the new horror. And I start talking about, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't listened to this, but we talk about movies like Psycho and I bring up this movie called Peeping Tom. And it was like, that was another instance where. We were young, we were in school, and I saw Peeping Tom, and it was like, Peeping Tom first Psycho, Peeping Tom's great. It's like, it doesn't have to be, and it, has, it doesn't have to be this one or that one. <laughs> you can like both Peeping Tom I know, and I know. Psycho. I know, I feel like, yeah, you wrestled with that for a little while. You were like, yeah, it was, uh, it was you like and your an, demons were it like, was no, a, it, yes, you know. It was like an immature. And you know what it, but you know what it was also, too, to, 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 to stick up for you? I think it also was the climate that we were at school. We were a lot, I, in my personal opinion, I think we were with a lot of people who, I wouldn't say we're like uh, pompous or pretentious, but a lot of people just were like, "Oh, if it's Spielberg, it's shit," or yeah, blah blah blah. Yeah. And I hated that. Like, "Oh, how Hartley's the greatest in the world," and it's like, "Well, I still like shitty movies." So, <laughs> you know, yeah. That's and then a- another thing with film school too was hard it, for for people is that uh, you know you you it's like going to becoming a doctor or something. It's like you completely like psychoanalyze every aspect of it so for a while there uh, for me at least it was hard for me to like try to watch a movie and enjoy it as opposed to dissecting it while I watched it you know like I remember I mean it still spills over yeah even all these years later you know but like I remember like say in 2003 seeing like Pirates of the Caribbean in the theater for the first time I was like yes I was like I'm finally back and I can watch a movie and enjoy it as opposed to like sitting there and saying why are they using this shot or you know they're crossing the director's line and and all that kind of bullshit that, you know, we, we, it was trained into us. So I think a lot of that was, you know, uh, at the time, the people and stuff that we, we, we had going on with, with stuff and what we're supposed to like and what, you know, we're not supposed to like and then learning new things. And, you know, with adolescence, you turn your back on some things. And Yeah, yeah. I, mean, you know, I think the horror thing was like a big... Well, yeah, you like, found like your... Like a rebellion uh, thing you found to a your, certain uh, extent, thing. too. And that was uh, speaking of the thing that um, that w- that was all um, that all happened like yeah first semester you know it just turned on for you it was uh, I don't know if we've ever how much we've gone into it but I always equated it. it was like a perfect storm yeah for me like how horror became like yeah a thing for me and then at b- that point coincidentally how everything was just being released like special. Uh, oh, restored. Part of it. it was just you know. like where we were, our proximity to the city, things were getting released with like widescreen. It was all that stuff. Monster Vision. Yeah, um, Monster Joe Vision Bob Briggs. Every Saturday Monster night, Vision. yeah. It was like meeting people that had seen other things. It was like this weird, perfect storm. Um, so I don't know, had I watched this movie in 97, 98 when we first met, uh, I don't know if I would have. I probably would have been stupid about it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's almost like I'm kind of glad that I didn't watch it then. Oh, yeah. Um, I wish I had seen it, like, at the age that you were when you saw it. I, that, that's another thing. Because I, mean, I feel like I probably would have really liked it then. I'm, I'm trying to figure out. I was wrestling with myself. Because you couldn't have seen it in 90. Like, you would have been like, No, nine. I didn't <laughs> see it in 90. But, like, this is the same year as Goodfellas. And I saw Goodfellas, like, right. I didn't see it in the theater. But as soon as it came on video, yeah. I saw that. So I was trying to figure out how I saw, it. and I think it's because it just I got into Gary Oldman. Yeah, you know I, I forget, and that's another thing I was trying to figure out. I think it might have been the professional. Like I saw, maybe the professional, and then uh, my father had a good friend of his uh, who uh, was an a keto instructor who I took a keto for a number of years with him, and since I would see him twice a week for uh, classes, 
he was a movie guy. So he'd always be telling me, see this, see that. He introduced me to like Dawn of the Dead and, you know, yeah. the movies I wouldn't have seen. And he was big and he's the one who got me into California with a K or, or Romeo's Bleeding, another Gary Oldman movie yeah. that I would not have thought about. So I think it may be the professional. He could have, you know, and then it was that. So I don't know. And I was trying to, and then I got into Gary Oldman. So I started watching everything Gary Oldman, like, like Track 29 or, you know, all his early stuff and, uh, you know, said Nancy. So then, and, and there's another criminal law, I think it's called with him and Kevin Bacon that takes place in Boston. Uh, and uh, this could have been one of the movies that I got. And then like, you know, I knew Ed Harris at the time. I knew basically sure. everybody, yeah. you know, in the cast. Um, I, what's his face? Um, John C. Riley wasn't. Um, I was about to say Nelson C. Riley. Uh, he wasn't. Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> That's I mean Charles C. Riley. Hello. On <laughs> uh, Match Game, uh, he wasn't really famous at the time, but I knew him because he, shortly around that time he was in Hoffa. So I was like, oh, it's okay, that guy, yeah. you know. And I never really was a big fan of his, even till today. Uh, not to say anything against him, he's a great yeah. guy. You know, we we have a lot <laughs> of fun with him, <laughs> stand-up guy. But you know, everyone, you know, you know, he he had a big wave. And I was like, eh, you know, I don't know, he's just as good as anybody else. So I couldn't I couldn't figure out when how when I saw this movie. But yeah, I saw it and I loved it. And then like it felt like a big secret to me, like you know, because I think one of the problems with the movie was it was released the same year as Goodfellas, and Goodfellas it did so yeah, well. Yeah, I mean that that seems to be like the common argument but as to why it wasn't as, as successful. And I can see the point, but I also wonder, like, really, how true is that? I, but I don't it, even looking uh, for for the for this podcast about it. It doesn't even seem like it was really released that I'm big. That, I mean, you know, <coughs> it, it just seemed like it had a limited release and kind of came in. Well, went. that's the thing is, like, we in hindsight we can say, like, you know. Goodfellas is kind of a gangster movie. This is a gangster movie of sorts, and they were but released kind within of different. Well, that's the thing is like they really, other than being like both dramatic films that have to do with organized crime, and I guess New York ish, like they really couldn't be two different movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not like this one is a carbon copy, like a lesser carbon copy of Goodfellas. They're totally different movies, totally different stories. And also that same year, King of New York, the Abel Ferrara movie came out. I, oh, believe, yeah. I believe also. Oh, with um, what's with Christopher face? Walken? Yeah, that's a movie everyone loved. That I haven't seen that since high school, so I like I don't even remember. Yeah, it. that's something I want to watch again too. But I feel like it's very dated. Like around that time in like nineteen ninety ninety one, when like hip hop was blossoming into like the, you know, like Dr. Dre and N.W.A. stuff. You had like that and like um, uh, Deep Cover came out and that was a big huge movie New Jack City was huge yeah. and and uh, along with Scarface that came out 10 years prior like like uh, King of New York and that, those were like quotable movies that people loved and there was demographics of people that like idolized those movies yeah, yeah. so I never really got into King of New York as much and I wonder going back for years to be honest I liked I saw Scarface very young in the 80s I thought it was good it was very violent you know, it was, it was yeah. uber violent for me back then. So it was like actually one of those movies that like my father may maybe not wanted me to watch, and I dug it. But then I kind of resented it into the '90s when we were in high school because then it was adopted by like the hip hop culture, and everybody that was like the favorite movie on the block. And I hated that. Like, well, they like it because it's like uh, it's like um, kind of. Uh, the excess, of yeah, like, and like, and, and it's the ideal. It's idealizing, or you know, it's like, like you know, of of the genre. And, and then I was like, well, you know, you don't really you'd like Scarface because of Tony Montana, but you know, it's Al Pacino and you know Brian De Palma, and that was the kind of uh, way I looked at it. So for years, I stayed away from it because everybody yeah. would have T-shirts of freaking Tony Montana smoking a cigar or whatever, you know. And then I don't know, like two years ago, I was watching a bit of Brian De Palma. Uh, 
and trying to like uh, digest his uh, fascination with like Hitchcock in those early movies. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you know, I'm right around this time. I watched like you know, Dress to Kill and some other stuff blow out. So I was like, I'll watch Scarface, and I really enjoyed it. It was like the I soundtrack. Yeah, that's one I need you know? to revisit. But it's too. it's almost like an opera. You know, it's 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 set up like an like an eighties. You know, like like Shakespearean, like kind of like uh, opera, where it's like the rise and fall of this. You know, it's like almost kind of like a Macbeth. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of very interesting. And uh, you know, I've loved the original Paul Muni movie Scarface, which is unbelievable. If anyone has never seen the original, that that you know, it's a the all um, the the Palmer movie is a remake. Oliver Stone wrote it, but yeah. they just changed it enough to like make it be when the Cuban uh, prisons were released in the 80s. That was a big, big problem. But the original, there's so many plot points that are the same, you yeah. know, it, even to the point where it's like uh, Paul Muni's playing Scarface. He sees on a, on a, uh, a blimp going by the world is yours, you know, so it's like, even that. And in the end, the big shootout, instead of it being like the Colombian drug gang, he's shooting it out with the cops, you know. Yeah. But, so it's really cool. And that was another thing, like, I didn't like. People didn't know that there was an original. And it was like, yo, this is the best one. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's an original. That's just they released good. some super deluxe edition. Well, though. for years, there, it wasn't available. And when I worked at a video store, like, around 2000, 2001, uh, they released it on DVD, and that went out of print. And it was scarce. So people would always be coming in for it, and we were really, like, kind of possessive about it because... God forbid if no one ever returned that DVD or if they scratched it, we wouldn't have a copy. So for a while, I think that might have happened. We didn't have a copy. We only had the VHS. And then there was this big rumor that this, it's getting a re-release. You know, yeah, everyone's yeah. like, oh, my gosh. And then it finally got, like, a re-release. And we, like, had, like, a day event, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we had, like, we, you know, we got it like it was a new release. Like, we had, like, a, like a dozen copies, and they went off the shelves. And, like, yeah, they've been a, a couple but of then, releases. But like, then, like, when that kind of happened, there they put out, like, a big deluxe, super deluxe edition box set where you actually got the original one. Yeah. Also. Yeah. In so, addition to the De Palma. Um, so yeah. So there's there's a whole era of movies around this time, like you're saying, like King of New York and stuff like that. Like I saw, but I like New Jack City, but like I, I feel like I don't know how dated they'll be. Especially for me, '90s movies are very dated. Early '90s, where people are wearing like freaking like uh, parachute pants with the <laughs> with the Velcro, like MC Hammer. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's wearing berets and like you know uh, shoulder pads, you know, and like bright colors and listening to like uh, freaking Bust a Move, the Young MC, you know. So it's yeah. like. I don't know how it'll hold up because maybe because that's uh, it's weird. Maybe because it's our childhood. I guess we lived through that era, so it's like you know, like I, I want. I was thinking to myself, I want to go back and watch the movie Trespass because I loved that when I was little, and, or Judgment Night. And I wonder, like, how are they believable now? Is it, is Dennis yeah. Larry believable as a heavy now? <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. because he's just some white guy walking around where it's like you know. Yeah, I mean, you know what Judgment I mean? Night was a big movie for me and my friends too, but. It definitely wasn't like we we didn't watch it even at that age with the same kind of eye that we would have watched like Goodfellas. Yeah, with, yeah. You know, it was like it was a different kind of you know it was like a more of a it was more of a sleepover movie. Yeah, it was more of like you know get together. It's kind of it's like a thriller, but it's definitely a different kind of movie. Um, but what I was going to say about this movie is like yes, people talk about you know Goodfellas overshadowing it, but I wonder how much of it is like. The Goodfellas was just a, it was a bigger movie by a bigger director with a bigger cast, probably you know with a bigger budget, and it hit. With, the, it, with I think m- it was probably with probably more money put into like the promotion of it. And I think it was like you said, a, a, a perfect storm in a way where it, it was the right movie to come out at the right time. You know, nineteen ninety. You know, you didn't have that many. You know, you had The Untouchables a couple of years before, but you didn't have any really big gangster films. That I don't aside from King of New York, but you yeah. know. So I think 
you, you know, that was like the first of, it t- of its kind to do like a biopic of, of uh, Nicholas Pileggi's, um, uh, uh, yeah, he uh, wrote about Henry Hill and it was, what's, what's the original, I forget what, it's not, The Wise Guy is his original book that Goodfellas yeah, yeah. is based off of. So, uh, and you know, someone like Scorsese who was kind of versed in the, you know, a, a New York 70s gangster and, you know, it yeah. was... I and mean, De Niro was at his height, his, at his height, you know, and so was uh, Pesci coming back from them reuniting from Raging Bull, and you know everybody in it was amazing. So it, you know, yeah, I mean, I just feel like I don't know if it's as much that that State of Grace didn't do well because it was overshadowed by the subject matter of Goodfellas more than that, like you know that people weren't seeing but like oh we already saw goodfellas we don't got to see state of grace it was probably just way more like they didn't people even know. they didn't even know it existed yeah i mean because it was like in the wake of just like the promotional machine of probably what was going on with goodfellas i mean it amazed me that they just said that it was it was released uh on a limited basis it came out september 14 1990 first uh week box office only grossed $179,000 cuz it was only on 14 screens across the country yeah so uh it only ended up. Uh, it was only in circulation for a few weeks, and it only appeared on 335 screens nationwide. And it only ended up making one million nine hundred eleven thousand five hundred forty-two dollars. So that's not a lot compared. I don't know how much it cost to make, but I. I, I, I mean, it couldn't I, have been a lot. Yeah, I was just saying. I, I, it, there's not really a lot going on in it. I think the biggest, in terms of like, yeah, maybe like what would add, you know, like you know, and it should cost. Yeah, and it's almost it's. I think it's almost entirely shot on location on the west side in Hell's Kitchen, where you you currently reside. So yeah. was, that's another plus. It's like, hey, you're gonna like seeing a lot of this uh, this stuff <laughs> we that can, you know. We can get into that because it's an interesting. That's another f- fascination for me. When we first went, uh, there's a lot of things that are like coming full circle now because when we first went went to the New Yorker Hotel to see like the Fangorican dimension in college, yeah, yeah. I'd known it from this movie. I was like, is this the New Yorker? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. you could see the New Yorker facade in the scene, yeah. and. Uh, there's a story where um, we in, in college, uh, Blake and I had a guy named Dean Bell who was a uh, was he our script writing teacher? He taught like di- directing narrative to us. Yeah, he was a director who had done. Uh, I guess his claim to fame was around the time when like Hot Shots came out and a lot of those parody movies in the '90s. Backdraft had came out and Backdraft had done well, so he wrote and directed a uh, parody, a parody of Backdraft called Backfire. Yeah, with um, what's her face is the lead, Kathy Ireland. Kathy Ireland was the lead. Natalie Savalas was in it. Yeah, <laughs> Robert <laughs> Shelley <laughs> Winters, Shelley Robert Winters Robert Mitchum, uh, Shelley Winters was in it. Robert Mitchum played the De Niro character, and Telly Savalas was in it. And it's sadly, it's T- Telly Savalas' last movie. And I think it's one of these movies where they were just getting a paycheck. And I think uh, Telly Savalas had some sort of cancer at the time, and he kind of knew he was just getting a paycheck to set his family up. Yeah. And uh, and it's I remember we watched it in college, and it was even ridiculous then. Like the jokes weren't hitting. Like you know they're like, oh, I'm shitting a brick, and then you cut to like a brick, <laughs> you know, falling down yeah, between his legs. Yeah. So it was really like, eh. And then they were doing like silly stuff where like. Um, there's a scene where they're at a party and like, you know, like Jurassic Park had just come out, so they're holding like their cocktails and you're like, doo, doo, and you see like the, 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 the ripples in the glass and that's Telly Savalas walking up and it's like, eh, you know, and you know, like we said, you know, Mitchum's in it and I, I doubt Mitchum's like, I'm going to do this because because <laughs> of the, you know, the sure. narrative integrity. So I'm anyway, not even, I'm not even sure Dean did it for, you know, for anything. No, I, yeah, page, exactly. Right? And, and Dean, then I, I talked to him about it. I was like, how was it, you know, directing these, these people, even in this context? He's like, it was unbelievable. He's like the first day of filming. You know, uh, they 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 cameras rolling. They get speed, 
and I'm in a trance and Mitchum's like, aren't you going to say action? And he's like, he was just in a daze, like, Jesus, I'm about to direct a scene with Robert fucking Mitchum, you know? So it was, it was kind of incredible. But um, anyway, so before he did that movie, he worked, uh, our teacher Dean Bell worked on the post-production of this movie. He did a lot of the ADR stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was saying at the time he was doing um, stu- like uh, studio sound work and he uh, oversaw a lot of the ADR that Gary Oldman had to do for his character. And at the time, he said it was when him and Uma Thurman had just hooked up because they met on this movie. Yeah. And uh, they were all over each other. And uh, he said that like, the entire time in, in, in the ADR sessions, uh, you know, Gary Oldman and, and Uma were inseparable. And I was like, oh, really? Because at the time, I loved this movie. Yeah, yeah. So that was the little story. That's our exclusive for, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for, for this movie. Um, so I always had fond memories of that. That like, oh, Dean, you know, Dean worked on that, and he ended up go- going on and doing a Doors. The Doors did like a music video for I think Strange Days, and maybe the uh, ninety nine two thousand. He worked on that. He did some stuff like that. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he's. I mean, he did a movie. I don't know, ten years ago now, called What Alice Found. That sometimes you'll see uh, pops up on TV so yeah. every once in a while. It's like a really low budget, like uh, digital movie. But uh, you know, it did. I think it did like the. You know, the festival circuit and stuff. Yeah, he could guy. <coughs> very good. Very nice guy. Uh, very cool. So um, why did I bring him? Oh, because, he, yeah, he, so he had, he, had, he had a story from this movie, State of Grace. And uh, I didn't realize until watching it that Ennio Morricone did the, the score. And yeah. I don't know why that would not have escaped me because I've known him since I saw The Untouchables, like in 88. Yeah. So it wasn't like a name that wasn't familiar to me. I guess I never put one and one together. Yeah. Or it's I was looking down at my penis when, it, when that <laughs> came on. I don't know <laughs> when his name came on. I was like, oh, what? This is, this is acting weird down yeah, there. Yeah. And Marcon just won an Academy. His first, I think it's his first Academy Award. Is that why it's such a big deal? For oh, this year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, you know, we've, we've, waxed about how amazing he is for years. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's it's a tough look when you when you look at movies, especially movies that like you don't have a a history with or like a nostalgia for. When you 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 know, it's really easy to point out to be critical about stuff and it's really like the easiest things are to point out the things that you feel like might be wrong with this movie so I, like if we get into any kind of like nitty gritty stuff about this movie and I end up sounding like an asshole I apologize it's just it's uh, <clears throat> it's not meant to be that way and I don't have like negative feelings towards this movie but sometimes it's just easier to point out the the things that could be perceived as flaws. And I only bring it up because I find the Nemo Cone score like really interesting and in that like I feel like the main theme obviously fucking beautiful and yeah. works amazingly in certain aspects of the movie. But there's like other incidental music that I found really distracting dur- during parts of the <laughs> parts of the movie. It was like it was real like it was a very weird uh like a like a bipolar thing for me with the with the score and that like I felt like at times fucking perfect yeah. like really fucking did it and other times I was like it's a really weird weird choice yeah they <laughs> it's ha- like almost distracting in this scene I noticed a lot of his <clears throat> cues this time around uh, were very uh, very much sounding like Untouchables which he'd done like three yeah, years before yeah. a lot of like the the heavy piano bits yeah and. Um, yeah, a lot of the diegetic choices for the music is interesting. Like, uh, you know, I, I grew up with a lot of Irish people, and, uh, like, that pub scene is very much, you know, very authentic for me in this movie. And, uh, you know, U2 in the background, and then the use of, like, uh, 
Guns N' Roses, uh, Sweet Child of Mine, which I don't think, surprisingly enough, has like, ever been used really in a movie that I know of. Yeah. So it was exciting for me, like being a big GNR fan at the time. Like, you know, you know, Guns N' Roses is used, of course, in um, Terminator 2, You Could Be Mine, and then uh, Appetite for Destruction, Welcome to the Jungle is used in the last uh, Dirty Harry movie. But they, to me, it doesn't seem like they've gotten, am I, am I wrong? Have they gotten more? You think they'd be used everywhere, but they're not really, I can't think of any many they're movies. In tur- they're in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Welcome to the Jungle is used in that. Is that like during the montage of Sam Rockwell and the Foot Soldiers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the kids, like. That's what they're, like, what, what they, when yeah. they're, 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 like skateboarding. Yeah, when they're gaming, the, you know, like in, the, in, the, in, the, yeah, in, the, in their youth center for the bad guys. Yeah, okay. So like when I when that came like this was very much my music at the time so I was yeah. like really into like that and that I like how they used it in that scene where Gary Oldman like is all it was crazy. interesting to look at like Morricone's career because he's done so many fucking movies yeah I mean he's probably he might he might have more like film music credits than anybody I mean this is just going off no yeah uh, factual information <laughs> yeah you know he's got I think he's got something like 500 film credits or something I mean he's, so, been, he's been going since uh, uh, so probably the early 60s if you look at like the span of his career in music it's I mean it's really fascinating how his style has changed and um, how like in the early days obviously being in, in an Italian you know industry where they didn't wasn't uh, they weren't accustomed to putting a lot of money behind the things they were making. So it's really a great uh, lesson to listen to a lot of his early scores to see like that you can do a lot with little. Yeah. Like you don't need to have a giant orchestra to to make a really powerful film score. And then he starts getting into obviously like the Leone westerns and it, it becomes like his signature becomes like the use of voice and uh, maybe impractical instruments that you would think of for the kinds of movies he's doing. Um, like I said, the, the the use of voice and percussion, it becomes like a very different style. And then in the 70s, he starts working on all these giallo movies, like Argento's original things, and they become more like jazz-oriented. It's, it's really uh, quite interesting, like, you know, aside from like a Lalo Schifrin or um, maybe like a Jerry Goldsmith, you know, thinking like... How many themes he's come up with? Yeah, you know, like especially the spaghetti westerns. People know them, but you know, there's not just like the. There's like yeah, he's done yeah. a whole bunch, you know, and then going well, into this. We talked this, at length about uh, once about time in the West when we talked about Tombstone. Yeah, and, 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 and four feet dollars more, and how like, each one of those characters. Has oh, it's a very amazing. Distinct theme, like, yeah, they're all fucking beautiful. And that's so. So you, that's what I mean. And then you get it, like you're saying, you get into the '70s, and he's doing the Giallo movies, and then you get into the '80s, he does the Thing. People know the Thing very well, and then you get into like you know. I think some people know the Untouchables if they if you play that main theme. So there's just so many even to now where um, I think it was one of the Kill Bills that I don't think he scored it per se. Where just uh, I think Tarantino hate, just yeah, used Hateful Eight was cuts. I, I think it was like the first time he ever used like original score scored music. Yeah, everything else has always been more of like a compilation of taking other things. You know, and, and then I heard that there was even like a dust up between the two of them. Like Morricone's like he's not using it right. I'll never use work for them again. Maybe that was for <laughs> Django. I don't remember. But, uh, you know, so it's just amazing to think over the span of his career how many things. It's like, yeah, that's me. That's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's me. And, and then, like, a movie like this, which came and went, it's like, is this just another job for him? Or is this... And this gets into the question that I think you and I have talked about a lot. But nowadays, for a, for an actor, a thespian, or, or a producer, director, writer, it's like, what are their expectations nowadays which are certainly different from 1990 or 1989 when this movie was conceived and shot, of how a movie's going to do, where it's like, do they think 
the movie's going to have this big theatrical release and could be, you know, if you're making some shitty straight-to-video movie, do, do, when you sign on, are you like, yeah, this could be an Oscar contender? And then you're yeah, surprised when it goes straight to DVD. Like, this movie, it's like, you know, this could have been, this could have been, uh, you know, cited. They're hoping this is going to be like a, a cult classic, which I think it became, but, I mean... Well, here's the thing. I mean, I can't imagine... Is it just a job, or I can't is imagine that anybody thought it was going to be, like, a huge movie. Not necessarily in success. Yeah. Like, that it was going to be hugely successful, but that it was going to be, like, this big, like... Obviously, it wasn't going to be, like, this big tentpole movie for the, for Orion or whoever, yeah. <laughs> or whoever. You know, because... Amazing cast. I don't think there's any... There's no... There's not even... There's no argument against the fact that this is, like, an amazing group of actors put together for this movie, and they're all fantastic in it. But there's no, like, real, like, movie star. I mean, Sean Penn, at the time, I don't... I mean, he was, like... Obviously, they were banking on that he was going to be the star of this movie, but it wasn't like he was, like, this huge, no. giant movie star he just in been 1989 in when they shot it, you yeah. know? And Gary Oldman... You know, amazing actor, but not like a box office no. superstar. Ed Harris been around forever, fucking solid, yeah. always, always great. Yeah, but again, it was like there was no like it. But then again, I mean, and look how ro- young Robin Wright is in this movie too. Yeah. it's unbelievable. She looks like she's like twenty. I mean, but at the time, you know, it's not like Ray Liotta was a big star when they did Goodfellas. But you had De Niro, who yeah. had, like, some gravitas, yeah. you know, in terms of, like, respectability. Yeah, and Paul Savino was pretty big at the time. and So you know. it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough call because you couldn't, like I said, you couldn't make that argument for Goodfellas. But I think the fact that De Niro was in it kind of maybe lent a lot of credibility to but this, Goodfellas. But this movie, I, I think maybe the one of the things it has going forward is that it, you know, they didn't replace an actor to, with a name that might not have been as good. This movie, you know, everyone's on point and solid. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, we have uh, Gary Oldman, Ed Harris. We, we said Sean Penn. Um, John Turturro. John Turturro. Uh, Robin Wright. Um, uh, John C. Riley. Burgess Meredith has a cameo. Um, uh, and a lot of other uh, little people that, that that you recognize and like, oh, it's it's you know, it's that guy, Thomas G. Waits. Yeah, who's slowly becoming. A, Did you see? Uh, Saturday I saw night him movie in that. <laughs> I saw him in a shot. I don't and even know if he has a line. No, it. he just they just cut to him and he laughs. And then is he ever seen again? He's in the background of at least a couple of the bar scenes, but like never in the foreground. Like he yeah. could be like if you're looking, like, oh, there's that. We're talking about um, he's the actor who plays Windows in the thing, and then he had a huge role in the Warriors that because of conflict with Walter Hill, the director, ended up getting yeah, chopped. He was going to be like the, the swan. swan. He was going like, to be the swan character, but he just had creative differences, uh, and it, he was pissing Walter Hill off as well as like um, Walter Hill realized there wasn't that much of a relationship with him and the female character as with the other guy Swan there was so he said fuck it I'm just gonna I'm gonna fire him shoot a scene with a double of him getting killed <laughs> and yeah. then just change the script and this poor guy's career is never really if you're into the movie of the Warriors we do like an, we did an epic Warriors yeah, we, 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 we went through the book you know we talk about the differences between the book and the movie you know I mean we, we I haven't listened to it yet but I saw that uh, we uh, our friends over at F This Movie, which is also a podcast and a blog site, that they did, a, they recently did a Warriors podcast, and I haven't listened to it yet, but I was like, I bet you ours is better. <laughs> sure. I mean, we, we put so much. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, but ours is really fucking informative. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were 
getting out of the stops. I know. We, we were, were doing like homework. You know, looking we had, at no stone was unturned. Yeah, we went to the library. We were checking <laughs> books out. You know. I may still have some of those books on return. We you were know. talking about Joe Bob Briggs. We talked about the video game. We talked about, um, you know. But so if you're into the movie The Warriors, 1979 yeah. Yeah, 79. Warriors, you definitely check out. And the podcast. phenomenon that happened. Yet, you know, and then, the, you know, all we go through, we get into everything about the era. But, the, but this guy, Tom, Tom Waits. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be mistaken with Tom Waits, uh, Thomas. What is he, it? Thomas Waits. He's definitely uh, he's Saturday Night Movie sleepover like alum. Now yeah, because I mean, but I think most famously people will know him now for as uh, Windows. He plays Windows and John Carpenter's yeah. that thing. Yeah, poor poor guy gets killed by that by the couch. Spoiler alert! Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Uh, and you got those sweet glasses on in the in the thing too. And what else has he been in? He's in some stuff in the eighties, but then he kind of just I subsides. I don't know. <laughs> we don't. Well, I'm sure we'll get to something. No, yeah, we're going to see him in it. <laughs> like, oh, he's in. We'll yeah. do another movie. And it's like, so oh. yeah, you're right. It's just like he, he shows up, and I was like, it's him. And then it's just like he comes and goes. And he's, you're right. He doesn't even have a line. Um, yeah, and the other thing, interesting thing about the, the movie, I don't know how you State of Grace. State of Grace. How, the, how do you pronounce this director's name? I I was trying to figure that out too. Uh, uh, Phil Jano, Jano, yeah, Jano. I think Jano, Jano, who he at the time was dating Uma Thurman, and I guess you got to keep your women away from Gary Oldman because <laughs> he just showed up on set and was like, "Hey, Gary, this is Uma, Uma, Gary, Gary, Uma," and then she, Gary's like, "I'm taking her," and then they got married and they ended up being married for I don't know how long, maybe like yeah, a year and a half. I, you know, according to you know what you said about you know what Dean Bell said, obviously like very uh, steamy and steamy, yeah. passionate. And we have a friend. Uh, who used to be an actor who we went to college with, who uh, ended up being in two Gary Oldman movies and got cut out. I think got cut out of both of them. Oh, but he oh. was in uh, Romeo. I think it was Romeo. He's, in, he's in Romeo's Bleeding. He's in. He's in the professional. He's in, and he's in the professional. He was shot oh, some scenes for the professional. Yeah, and he worked with Gary Oldman with both these scenes. And I think like which one was first? Romeo's Bleeding's first. Romeo's Bleeding. He's saying yeah. that. At around that time, Gary had drinking problems. He had, and he was also like, you know, the whole Uma Thurman thing was happening. So there was like a big, uh, maybe they were on the, they were, maybe things weren't going so well. But he was like, every between every take, he was like on a phone talking to Uma Thurman because she wasn't on set. Yeah. Was, was this his report, alleged. Yeah. And then when he met Gary Oldman again in professional professional like he was Oldman was like way cooler it was like remembered him he's like oh yeah how yeah. are you and, yeah sorry about fucking <laughs> the, way, the way things were on the last thing and, and uh so yeah that was a big hot and heavy and do you know is this where robin wright and sean penn yeah. became an item yeah so they, they 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 hooked up here they had they ended up having children and then they got married afterward and they've been married until what a couple of years ago i guess right um yeah. And Robin Wright, of course, would probably be uh, nowadays. Nowadays, she, she's for House of Cards. I know, but in terms of like you know, sleepover, like probably what would originally become what would eventually become a sleepover, like Hall of Fame movie, would be Princess Bride. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I think how yeah, how she's in that movie. Yeah, she, her and uh, they became a couple on the set. They had two children over the next three years, broke up, and then they got married together uh, in '96, and then Olman. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Uma Thurman became Olman's second wife shortly after the film premiered. Their marriage lasted only 18 months before Uma filed for divorce in March of 92. And that's, I think, right around the professional. And, uh, you know, I, it's not a secret that Olman always talked about that he had a, a kind of a propensity to drink at that time. And then I guess right around, right after the professional, I, I think he was 
he 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 uh, destroyed or crashed or totaled a car in L.A. like a like a real hot rod car, and he was all right. And then he stopped drinking. And I think he's you know he's been sober ever since. You know, but uh, this is one of the movies where he says. I've heard him say this is like his best work or he, he feels maybe this yeah. is I'm going off information that's like 10 years old yeah, so yeah. who knows but nowadays <laughs> he, might, he, might, you know, he might have cha- not changed his mind about being good in this movie yeah. but might have other parts that he now, likes now, yeah he's like you know maybe he likes like Sidious Black now well, I know that he <laughs> you know? talks a lot about uh, nowadays uh, he talks very highly of playing not so much of his performance, but in a role that he really liked was playing Oswald. Oh yeah, in JFK. JFK yeah, and yeah. apparently he really loved the role of uh, that he played in what's it called Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy a couple of years ago. Yeah, George Smiley. You're right. He was role. big into that. You know, and that's a huge. That was a big book, and that was a huge. Um, which is available on Netflix. If anybody was into that movie, there's an original with Alec Guinness. They did like a BBC. It was uh, like a mini series. Yeah, right? they did so it on BBC, which is maybe 1980, 1979, which is just as good. And uh, I don't. It might not be as convoluted as the uh, Gary Oldman, Tom Hardy version. <laughs> that's a little. It's a little. You got yeah, really, well, to really pay attention, or you lose. Yeah. Stuff. Well, it's also obviously yeah. compared to that a very condensed version because it's one movie yeah. as opposed to like a, yeah. like a few movies. I find you know obviously Gary Oldman great in everything, and oh, I've also heard that he likes Drexel. From True Who doesn't like his Drexel? <laughs> he, uh, when he was the, the story with him on Drexel Sp- Spiny Sp- Spirey is the um, he was doing Romeo's Bleeding, got the script for for True Romance, and um, he said, you know, what's it about? I don't read scripts. Pitch it to me, and they're like, you're going to play a, a black pimp, and he says, I'm on, I'm in it, and. Uh, at the time, the guy who was his bodyguard in New York while filming for principal photography for Romeo's Bleeding was this black uh, pimp. So Gary Oldman just one day called him into his trailer and said, I want you to read this verbatim how you would read this. And he hit record, and he recorded the guy's cadence and dialogue. And then the, he also said to the guy, I want you to change stuff that you don't think is right. So right here he says, I wouldn't say titties. I'd say brecisses. And he's like, perfect. Say it like that. And that's where he got all the inclination. I think because... When he did uh, Dracula, uh, Ullman dropped his voice an octave to play the older Dracula. Yeah. So he kind of did that for the for this performance. And there's a lot of other stuff that's that 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 movie. If you, I, I, I think you own the script too. I have that book. That's like there was a book that came out that was like Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. I, I don't together think I have that one. But uh, originally, True Romance was written. Uh, Tarantino wrote it like he wrote R- Reservoir Dogs. So it's all over the place. It's not. Uh, yeah, it's not linear. Yeah, it's not linear as Tony Scott ended up putting the movie out. So uh, there's a lot of extra scenes in it, and there's this big subplot that they kind of... There is a director's cut for True Romance, but I don't think they touch upon it in the director's cut, but there's a, a thing where he's like only half black. He's like half Cherokee or something, Gary Oldman's character. <laughs> yeah. So that's like the thing that like Christian Slater busts him on. Like, you're not even black. And he's like, yes, I am. My mother's half Cherokee. You know, like that. But <clears throat> I think... I mean, personally... Out of everything he's done, I mean, he's amazing as, as Oswald. Yeah. You know, I mean, you watch the footage of Oswald versus him, and it's like, you know, it's a, it's, he looks, you know. Yeah. And, and then him as Sid Vicious is amazing, too. Yeah. Uh, I would venture that Sid Vicious wasn't so much a stretch because he's from, you know, the, the London and like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, but you think about, you know, uh, uh, an English actor from London with, with a specific accent then being able to do like an African-American pimp. Yeah. Mind-blowing. And not even, like, some people like Tim Roth or some other English actors, sometimes you could you can hear the accent peeking through. 
uh, and that kind of annoys me. But Gary Oldman, it's flawless every time. Well, that's the thing. I wondered, like, how big, you know, when we, look, well, we, we grew up, look. we grew up in the, during that, like, we were the, we were the audience for that, like, that mid, early to mid 90s like independent boom of like Reservoir Dogs and then of course Pulp Fiction came out but then you had like the Rob Rodriguez you know Mariachi and you had the Kevin Smith Clerks and then you know and then uh, Slacker and all that stuff yeah, yeah. and uh, all that stuff that was just like those were the movies that I feel like I'm safe to, I think it's pretty safe to say that not all those movies specifically but that Influenced you as you know in a they way also, in a similar way that it influenced. They also me. made me go look at other. So I was a big Scorsese fan at the time, yeah. but then I said to myself, you know, Goodfellas isn't the only fucking movie Scorsese's done, yeah. and neither is Taxi Driver. So then these little movies like Clerks and stuff made me go back and say, watch Mean Streets or watch the yeah. lesser the B sides sure. of a lot of. Uh, directors and actors that I like, like I said, with Gary Oldman. So it's, you know. But then, like, the whole Tarantino thing came, and I'm sure that that's probably why I watched True Romance, because that movie became, like, a much bigger phenomenon after Tarantino became, like, his star, star in his road, because he had written the original you know, script. It's for so it. funny. To, I don't I mean to, to, to stop you, but um, I remember when True Romance. I remember seeing trailers for it on television when it came out, and it looked like. I was like, I don't want to see that. That movie looks horrible. You know, just how they marketed it. Like, it's like a romantic comedy about two guys who were on the run. Two guys, a, guy, a girl and a guy. <laughs> Would have been a much more you know? interesting movie. <laughs> and, and then, I know, very weird. And then when I, after, you know, when I found out the cast and I go see it, it's like it's such a good movie versus how they really pitched it. And it's like, it's just weird because that's another movie that came and went. I don't think it yeah. did well at all in the box office. And, you know, there's a lot of positive things about that movie. Well, and I think you it's know? developed like a, a big like cult following I mean that, since that has a, that's like just like uh, our, the movie we're going to do next week and there's so many people in that movie even like you have like a guy like Val Kilmer who you don't even get a, uh, a shot of he's only yeah, like yeah. in the you know in, in reflections in the mirror playing Elvis you know it's unbelievable but so like I think those kinds of movies that at least I think that's what for me anyway kind of started me on like this path and that's why it's like I would have loved to have seen State of Grace during that time because I feel like I really would have been you know I would have embraced it in a way that like I just don't think it's possible for me to embrace a movie in general <laughs> nowadays you wholeheartedly know? Like you know that. as you can in youth and not uh, you know maybe less jaded or just like without the experience and the amount of movies that we, we see now uh, that you see when you're like in your late 30s as opposed to there's just so much more shit to compare it to and uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this. Like, I kind of sidetracked. You're talking about how uh, we grew up in that era of, of 90s. Yeah, uh, but movies, so like. So you, you wish you saw then, this movie in a context. Yeah, and then, but then, you know, and then you have like uh, but you, Goodfellas and then obviously then Casino came out. I think that was like all that shit was like setting, you know, we, I feel like that's, we, we come from similar yeah. backgrounds. But uh all that stuff. I, I guess in a way, I just I feel like it's it's important to. I know where I'm going with this now. Sorry. Uh, it was important to kind of set that set the set the table, as you say. Yeah. Like that's kind of like where we were coming from. And I'd be really fascinated to see like what people who what people in their 20s now were into. Because I remember uh, probably the Marvel movies. talking to somebody who went to the school that we went to. He wasn't in the film program, but I was asking him about, like, what a... This was even... I don't know. This was maybe 
10 years ago. Okay. But so it was like almost 10 years after we had been, yeah. after we went to after our freshman year. So I was like, well, what are they into? You know, because like we, I think our generation was very into like, like I said, the Kevin Smith, the Tarantino, like that wave. The of indie indi- movie. That wave of independent movies yeah. was very like, we can do this. Yeah. You know, it was like, yeah. had we just seen Goodfellas, we might have not been like, I can do that. But we were watching th- things like Reservoir Dogs, which was great. And you're like, yeah, I might the, be done able, on the cheap. I might be able to do that. Yeah, which was completely um, wrong. They they, they lied he, to us. And he was saying that you know I don't know people are really into Wes Anderson, who was a contemporary of those guys. Yeah. Like Bottle Rockets came out around that time and and stuff. But I guess my the point taking the long way around is like I'd really be interested to see like does anybody like even know who Gary Oldman is other than like he's Commissioner Gordon like does anybody realize what like a genius for well, I think <laughs> that's like a, sadly he, you know he, like he never we, got his credit until City is Black or yeah he's, he gets like we grew up at a time where Gary Oldman was like that was like his people, heyday but there people like, were, but at the time there was people who didn't even know Gary Oldman was back then you know well because I mean he's such a chameleon actor you, know, that you wouldn't even realize that he was in I mean stuff, I think people people would know him if you pointed him out, you know, because he's in such a diversity of movies. Like, he's in The Scarlet Letter. Remember that freaking one with uh, What's-Her-Faith, Demi Moore? Or yeah. he's, you know, he's here or there. So, I, and it got to a point where he was playing villain so many times that I think he said he, uh, he wanted to stop being a villain. And that's when I think he blended, he went into Harry Potter, he went into The Dark Knight, and then he's now cemented himself in such a fine way where people know him as an accomplished actor and, and he's endeared himself because being in like a Harry Potter yeah well that's what I mean it's like, like the, people know him the now Nolan's as Dark Knight movies. does anybody realize that like prior to that they're so like the that those parts are tame in yeah. terms of like a stretch for him in terms of like what he used what to do, used to do. Well, I, I've always I mean you take a person like say Peter Sellers who was, who was a chameleon with stuff uh, I mean and to a lesser extent Phil Hartman and these are people who like didn't really have their own personalities. Like you know, Phil Hartman, I think Phil used to Hoffman? say, "No, <laughs> Phil Hartman, remember the comedian? Oh yeah, from yeah, Saturday Live. Like he would do so much stuff and voices. He would say he didn't really, he couldn't really find who yeah, he really yeah, was. Okay, yeah. And Peter, um, Peter Sellers, the same way. He would have so much, you know, they would kind of be void inside because they're able to do so much. You know, it, it's it's certain a discipline to be able to." master various ethnicities or whatever or dialects and I've always wanted to ask Gary Ullman how he I mean I don't necessarily per se think that like him going to acting school or whatever he did like you know um, accents were his speciality but he somehow found that he has a gift for mimicking you know, it's not only like he has a good American accent. He's able to then get into our dialects, and he's able to do like in that criminal law. He's he has a Boston in JFK. He's Southern. There's a movie called I think Chattahoochee with he did with Dennis Hopper where he play. It's a true story where he plays a, a, a prisoner in the South in a prison, and he's got a Southern accent that's completely different. Uh, we take this movie. He's got a he's got a West Side accent for in, in Hell's Kitchen, and Romeo's Bleeding, which is a, also a New York movie. He's a cop. It's a different accent, you know, so it's like he has a very weird, you know, it's not like he just has like two or three different, you know, maybe as he gets older now, you know, he has a staple of, you know, different dialects, but I just, it's, I'd love to hear his, that, what fascinates me is like, I'd like to talk to like RK, RK Rowling, JK Rowling, you know, or these people or the guy who did Game of Thrones, uh, George Martin, it's like, I'd like to know their process, how they come up with stuff, like Gary Oldman, do you sit there and you like just listen to someone phonetically or how do yeah. you come up with your, your character and your you know how do you go about 
Is it hard for you? Well, that's the thing. You know, there's. Uh, it's amazing just the process of how they brainstorm to either come up with a body of work like, say, the Harry Potters or uh, him as an actor. Like, you know, do you know? Well, the artistic process is fascinating. I mean, I wrote a whole. I wrote a whole book about it. Yes. <laughs> you know, like one of the reasons I wrote this book that comes out in a few months called The Score to Death, and it's it's why I interviewed 14 composers who've kind of made significant contributions to writing music for horror movies. And that was like, initially when I went to write it, it was, uh, you know, I'll ask them about, you know, working on Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, the famous movies. But what I found very quickly was the things that I found most interesting weren't really as specific about the movies. Yes, we talk about specific movies, but I was just, I became very fascinated about talking to them about their process. Well, who's the guy that you, just to, to give an example, give a little plug, who's the gentleman that you said actually draws? Oh, Harry Manfredini has a... Who, no, who, who, who's that? Who did most of the Friday the 13th movies, the scores for the Friday the 13th movies. He's the one that invented the... And he... I mean, he's done other things, but he's that's what he's best known for. But he has a process where he draws, like he hears a lot of them. Most of them hear the music in their head. They just like hear it playing while they watch movies, which is like you kind of hear that from songwriters. Like I have it; it's just a matter of getting it down. Yeah. Some people like John Carpenter, the more rock-oriented guys, like John Carpenter, Claudio Simonetti from Goblin. For them, it's more about sitting down at a piano or a keyboard or whatever and improvising until it kind of comes out. Whereas these other guys, a lot of them, it's like they hear it while the movie's going. It's like, it's fucking instantaneous, which is fascinating. But then for him, the sometimes the easiest way for him to get it down is that he draws, he draws it as a picture. And it's not so much like writing each note. It's just like, it goes down here and then it comes up and it becomes like this weird graph thing, but like much looser. I tried to get him to send me a, picture of one so I could include it in the book and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> I tried to get him to explain it the best he could. But the creative process is a fascinating thing. And, and you know, people uh, you know, actors, that's a funny, I find it very funny that there's like these acting schools and they teach the method at the new school and it's things because it's, I, I would imagine it's all very personal and very different for every, every, everybody, how they can approach there used to be always this rumor, I don't know if it's true, but there was always this rumor that like Daniel Day-Lewis, Kenneth Branagh, Gary Oldman, Tim Roth, like they all were in the same acting class together, like in England. Some freaking teacher. (laughs) And I don't know know if that's true or not, but it was always like, wow. Well, you know, I always find it very, it's a very weird... But uh, you hear about like Daniel Day-Lewis, like you gotta call him fucking Lincoln on set, or like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman when he did Capote talked in that fucking accent, the Capote... Voice. I understand that. I can like I you get, have to once I, you get it, you don't want to lose it. It's not you know? like a, it, I'm not saying this as like a criticism, but you yeah. just see like that those are people that that's their method. They need to stay. And then in there's it. other people, other people just drop it. Yeah, they drop it in between takes and then they turn it back on. Yeah. It's all I would imagine. It's all very well, personal. Our friend who who was uh, who was in Roma was bleeding in um, the uh, professional. He said that uh, Oldman kept the accent in the uh, room was bleeding the entire time but he would go in and out during the professional uh, I mean because his performance in the professional is all over the place and that's not a bad thing I'm yeah saying. yeah but it's just you know how wild he was um, it's 
it's weird because you think about the people who, you know, will go to acting classes all their lives. And even if they're a successful actor now who are making zillions of dollars, they still want to freshen up and go to an acting class. And you think about... Or they just hire a personal coach. Yeah, and like it's weird because it's like, I, I was character. thinking, like, I don't want to sound ignorant, but I was thinking, like, you know, if you're a carpenter, you learn how to be a carpenter, are you going to keep going to carpentry classes for the rest of your life? Maybe you do to try to hone your skill, Yeah, you but know? You, well, I would imagine here's would be, like, uh, if you were to play devil's advocate, that I would imagine... Uh, you want to stay fresh and keep it. You it's know. a matter of staying fresh, but it's like you could imagine, like, okay, if you're a carpenter, you know, you're working on a gazebo, <laughs> and then you got to build a house. Yeah, you got to know how to. You do might it. need. Yeah, it. and an actor might argue that like every character is different, course, yeah. so it's a matter. It's sometimes a matter, and also like you know, working carpenter works a nine to five job. You know, they're part of a union. They probably work that job every single day. Whereas an actor, it's like you work that job every single day. Until like that job's over, yeah, and then you might not, <laughs> you might not get another movie right away, oh, yeah, or yeah, yeah. a play or whatever. So I would imagine it's it's made to be staying fresh because you, you know, when you're not working, it's a matter of staying fresh. And I would imagine that it's you know they work with somebody to maybe help them with the accent or like I said, every character's kind of different, so you yeah. got to kind of find. Because your it's like way martial in. arts, people will stay even though if they get a black belt, they'll still stay relevant. And it's fascinating, like you said, like there's all these different schools for like you know the method or, or or different styles of teaching acting and who you want to go with and what do you believe and then you look at uh people who had a career first like i always say like you look at james cagney who was like a freaking he just needed to pay bills so he just started acting because it paid more than driving a taxi yeah. you know and his his biggest thing was like you know know your lines and you know hit your mark you know, and, and mean what you say, and that was his advice for acting. <laughs> yeah, and, like, yeah. he's freaking great. Or you, like, take, like, you know, like a Danny Aiello, who was a cop for 20 years, and then, you know, he became a, uh, an actor afterward, or Dennis Farina. You know, it's like you think of these people who just stumble into it, and they just start getting work, you know, like our friend Randy Jurgensen, who we did a podcast with. Yeah. You know, it's just like they just started doing it, and then it was natural to them, and it's like, you know. Yeah, well, I think there are. Or Johnny Depp, you know, he wanted to be a freaking musician, and he's like, yeah, this pays the bills, you know, I just want to have a rock band. I think, you know, like anything, I think there are people that have a natural talent for certain things. I think that has to do with it. And I also, I have this argument, not an argument, I have this uh, point of view that I feel like anybody can give a good performance. Yeah. It's given, the, like, the right director, the right material, the right whatever. It's the, the people that are the great actors are the ones that can do it all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. you know, they can do it consistently giving different characters, different scripts, different directors. They're the ones that can consistently do it. But you can get anybody given the right material and the right director to give a to give a really great performance. So I mean I think uh, you know, Dennis Farina, fucking great. Yeah. But he never really played anything other than either like a mob guy in like Midnight Run or a detective, which is what he was before yeah, he yeah, became yeah. an actor. And it was like, that was his niche and he was fucking great at it. And yeah. I loved watching Dennis Farina yeah. uh, do that. But I don't know if like Dennis Farina could have played, you know, half the roles, yeah. a third of the roles, 10% of the roles that Gary Oldman was <laughs> managed to pull off. You know? I mean, yeah. I mean, Oldman is amazing, and I think some of his best work are the, the B-sides that people don't really know. Uh, what I find interesting about the State of Grace performance, um, I mean, for, uh, basically, in a nutshell, it's about the you know Irish gangsters on in Hell's Kitchen. The Westies. And uh, they're forming this alliance with the Italian mob. 
which was a real like we can get into it, but it's, this is all really actually problems that they had in real life at the time. Yeah, I mean, because I I don't know how many people have seen this movie. So I mean, basically, it's that. And Sean Penn plays a guy who grew up in that neighborhood, is friends with uh, grew up as friends with Gary Oldman's character, and who Gary Oldman uh, Ed Harris kind of runs the the Irish fraction a faction of the mob and he's plays uh, their brothers Gary Oldman and Ed Harris in the movie and then their little sister is uh Robin uh Wright who had a, a romantic relationship with Sean Penn at a time and Sean Penn disappears and he comes back um and I don't know if you, you guys can hear all that beeping <laughs> outside Blake's house <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people getting picked up in the morning. <laughs> um, Get ready to go to school. But what I was going to say about the Gary Oldman character is he yeah. plays this very like over the top, like uh, alcoholic, uh, just like larger than life character, and he does it beautifully as he does everything. And um, I think the the best moments of his performance are when it's not that. Yeah, like there's a part where Ed Harris gives him a hug, and he's like. Frank, you haven't done that in years. And it's like that for me was like the best moment in the entire movie for his performance. But what I find interesting is that like, you know, like you said at one point, he cited this as being like a great, uh, like one of a performance that he's very proud of. Um, Yet when we met in college, you know, reading an article, an interview with him, because at that point he had directed a movie called No By Mouth. So he was doing a lot of press for that. And he talked about how, like, his performance in The Professional, like, he's, he's, like, cringeworthy, and he's, like, very embarrassed about, like, how big it is. And in Europe, apparently, they really trashed his performance in The Professional for being, like, fucking just chewing up scenery yeah. and stuff. And I look at these th- those two performances, and they're, like, in my opinion, like, they're not that different. Yeah. If anything, I feel like his, like, over-the-topness is more justified in the professional. Because he's, he's an insane. Because <laughs> he's like an insane fucking cop who's, you know, uh, drunk on power, but also, like, taking whatever drugs. You don't even know what he's taking, but yeah. he's clearly a drug addict of some sort. Whereas, like, he's, he's so over the top in this and, and just, like, in certain aspects. And it's like, I just find it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, comparison because I don't feel like they're not too far off, but yet he's... He really doesn't like his performance in The Professional, and he likes his performance here. And I, I guess I, he feels maybe that it's not justified in The Professional. I mean, we've just justified Well, why. as a viewer, I, yeah. you know, I would disagree, but I mean, you know, maybe, opinion is you know, <laughs> maybe he would think it's just, you know, it's, it's, it shouldn't be subdued where it, this is, it, this lends itself, him being the larger-than-life little brother, lends himself to be a little more wild and propensity to have these outbursts and stuff. I find him really, it's kind of sad, like, you know, his, 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 his character where he's kind of like, you know, he's an alcoholic and stuff, and he has these issues with violence, and he's kind of, um, uh, it's the, the, it's the life he leads where he kind of has to justify the violence and with the drinking, but then he try he has to be kind of somewhat loving in the same way, you know, that there's a scene when, like, uh, when takes Sean Penn over to Ed Harris's mouth, for Ed Harris's house for them to meet, yeah. uh, you know, like, Ed Harris is like, go watch the kids, to Gary Oldman and so Gary Oldman isn't really even let into like the inner room to have the meeting you know and I find yeah, a lot of that yeah. sad and like it's like you know he's kind of like maybe on purpose or or Ed Harris has kind of it's kind of his uh, fault too that, that Gary Oldman is this way because he never really like you said he doesn't get the hugs he doesn't 
he's not really treated with clean yeah. gloves. So this kind of is a, a demon that everyone helped create. You know, they're not really helping him and giving him the responsibility. Maybe because they think he's going to fuck up, which maybe he will. But, you know, you got to mess up to be able to, to, to succeed in life, you know. So it's kind of like they've he's got a he's hot headed. He's got a temper, you know, and, 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 you know, maybe if people treated him a little better or, you know, gave him a little extra time. He wouldn't be this raging nutcase. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know there's, there's a lot of interesting things about the way. I mean, I feel like, for me, script-wise, I feel like there's a lot of questionable... I would have. It would have been interesting. I would love to see if there was, like... If earlier drafts of the script had... You know, if things paid off in certain ways, maybe a little bit better. Um, but for what's there in the movie... Um, the, the, every like we said, everybody's great. Gary Oldman, like you said, he's playing this character, but there's also there's this. He's, you know, wants to. He looks up to his brother, and it's a lot of like. Wanting, it's almost like wanting to please. Yeah, he wants know? to please his brother, and then Ed Harris is playing this older brother who's kind of running this thing, and you know he's he's got a he puts up this almost like a front of like of of being the boss for everybody else, but you can tell that like he feels so belittled by. The Italian. Well, I mean, I thought, <laughs> but I think it, I think his feelings justified. Oh, they are. They do. They do look at him this way. You know, he's yeah, trying. No, no I, I mean, it's it, almost like he is embarrassed, and maybe rightfully so, at Harris, at his, at even his upbringing or his heritage. The, I don't say the Irish generally, but just yeah, yeah. the the, the Westy mob he's dealing with. You know, there's that scene where they're trying to shake down a guy to to, to, to drink certain, take certain alcohol, and then they all like uh, degrade into a fight. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like he can't even control anybody. So, and so it's kind of justified. Then when he's trying, to, he feels like so ashamed of them. And then when he goes to the, to the Italians who are supposed to be like so much higher. And this was a, in, in the time there was in the sixties and seventies there was a Westies gang in New York, very violent, and they controlled the West Side, the Hell's Kitchen. Uh, you know, where a lot of the Irish um, at some point in time, you know, were were, were migrating to and uh, raising families. And then a big thing, a conflict in the 70s and 80s happened because um, they were developing a lot of the West Side, like Madison Square Garden and the Javits Center. Yeah. And a lot of the Italians, like the Genovese crime family and the, the Gambinos, wanted in. And the Westies were like, no, this is our territory, if you, you know, because they were into construction, uh, the Italians, and they wanted a piece of the pie for the Javits Center and stuff. So they had to try to broker these deals. And the Italians very much so didn't like dealing with other gangs. And, you know, because of their downfall in the mid-80s with John Gotti, that gave you, they opened the floodgates for the Russians, the Jamaicans, the Chinese, the Japanese, all these other crazy gangs you see now, yeah. you know, because they lost their reign of power. So this was, there was a real power struggle at a certain time where they were trying to have, like, these kind of alliances, the Italians and the Irish, or the two Italian, say, you know, uh, ruling classes. But I think the Italians did look, they were a bit elitist, the mobs, where they would yeah, look yeah. down on everyone else. And certainly, you know, the Irish people have looked down with for centuries, you know. Uh, since the great potato fam of 1841 or 51, <laughs> I think it is, you know, when yeah, they came, yeah. came over here. So, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of truth in Ed Harris's character there where he's trying to, 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 to be in that class. But it's, you know, it's like, you know, you're, he's not in that, you know, he's, he, he, he's not in the upper but class. I just mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because you got Gary Oman who's looking up to him and kind of feels inferior. And then you got Ed Harris, who at the same time is uh, there's a little bit of resentment. I feel like from Ed Harris's character about the way the Italians talk about like the guys on the kids from the, you kids on the West side. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's a little bit of like, he's a little bit res he, resentful of that, but at the same time, like 
I think he kind of agrees. He also he he yeah, and he's embarrassed by it. But there also like there's the Gary one has like the inferior inferiority complex for Ed Harris, and Ed Harris kind of has that same complex. Yeah, for the for the for the whole locale <laughs> for the for the mob. You know, he wants to. He's looking up to to the Italian mob, and he wants that. But it's like it's just a really interesting. There's a lot of interesting character stuff going on. In the, the guy who plays the head uh, Italian mobster, it's his film debut, Joe Vertarelli, who I think people would know him. Um, he became big in the get sh- that gets shorty. Analyze this. Yeah, the analyze. He's this in the analyze it, analyze this, analyze that. He's great he's, in this movie. He's De Niro's. Uh, to be his first, like, yeah, part. And then the delicatessen that there, that his mob runs out of that ends up people will know it in the Sopranos they shot a lot at the, the Sopranos yeah. there when, when the New Jersey mobs would come and meet the New York mob I think the New York mob was based out of this delicatessen you know um, the uh, and this was a role at Harris's role that originally um, uh, Bill Pullman was cast as Bill Pullman yeah but it wasn't working out so they replaced him with Ed Harris uh, uh, what's his face Ed O'Neill had auditioned for the role too uh, for the role t- as well and they gave it to Ed Harris, but Ed Harris was was reluctant at the moment because he had just <laughs> he had just had almost a psychological breakdown because he just wrapped filming The Abyss, and uh, and you know he had such a I, I don't know, I guess people know this, but he had such a hard time doing The Abyss with James Cameron that like it really messed him up. Like um, yeah. j- you know James Cameron can be very demanding, and there's certain scenes where I guess it got so much so where. There's a story where Ed Harris left set and was driving home and had like a mental breakdown on the way home, like crying and stuff. Like he couldn't take it anymore. So he was in a real tender spot. So he was kind of really hesitant to, to take a movie right after that filming wrap. And I think The Abyss came out after this. Yeah. I think it came out like the end of 1990 or 91. You know, and that was huge at the time. That kind of probably skyrocketed him to a good place, you know, and that's a, such a great movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so he was kind of reluctant to take this job. And I think, you know, it's not really... There's not really a stretch, I would say, here, like, you know, physically or, or you know, or, you no, know, but no, it's just, but, you know, that's, you know to, to, to give, I guess, to do justice to the character and not just, you know, walk through it, you know, it has a, for it to be a paycheck, you know. Yeah. And he, I mean, I, I like Ed Harris. I feel like he's one of those guys that just, like, doesn't like Ed Harris. consistent, you know. You know he I can't wait for him. He's coming out in that Westworld HBO remake, whatever that, hell, that yeah. thing's like, he's playing Yul Brenner, the man in black. It's going to be fucking great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, who doesn't like Ed Harris, man? <laughs> you don't like Ed Harris, yeah. fuck you. Yeah, fuck you. I mean, then, you know, you have such a great, you know, Gary Oldman and Ed Harris in the same movie. It's like freaking awesome, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, I'd say. Uh, I mean, even John Totoro, great, you know, great role for John Totoro. I always got to laugh, um, you know, when they're on the subway at the time, you know, when, when uh, I really, you know, I never really, f- I identify with everybody else in the movie when I growing up watching it. So this first time is like I really understood Sean Penn's kind of trauma so like I kind of understood yeah. where he's like I can't do this and he's starting to freak out so you know I understood when like there's a scene when they're on the subway and he's meeting with John Turturro and he's like you gotta get me out and then he's like you don't know what's you what are you well there's a big, a big spoil I mean there's, I, guess, I guess it's kind of explained in the opening scene although I didn't really get it that that was what was going what's going on yeah it's, it's well they, they they do that I think that was probably how the script was sold where it's like it's kind of done that way where yeah. it's like well, I don't understand and then you realize halfway through the movie so there's a like, huge ah. there's a huge spoiler right now so if you don't if you haven't seen this movie, you should turn turn this off now. <laughs> now's and come the back. now's the time that you turn this off and then you come back because we're gonna fucking spoil the fuck out of this movie. Yeah, with all um, the swearing. Ready? <laughs> okay, here we go. You're, you're you've, you've been warned. Yeah, it's that Sean Penn is he he is from that neighborhood, grew up in that neighborhood, is friends with those people. But when he left, he became a cop. He went to Boston. 
and he's coming back as an undercover cop in the in his old neighborhood. So what Dan's talking about is that he can't do it. I mean, there is like this struggle uh, for his character because like he's now basically there to fucking like ruin the lives of everybody. Well, he, they, I guess what yeah, what happened was they kind of recruited him. They probably went up to the Boston PD and were like, you know, this is getting out of hand, or there's this alliance because when he comes back. He, he he wants Gary Oldman to introduce him to... They say some names, and Gary Oldman's like, no, they're gone. You know, my brother's running it now. And I would think that he would have known that. Yeah. So I think maybe, you know, the FBI or whoever it is... I guess it's, it's not the FBI, so it must be like the um, the NYPD must have went up there and asked him, and he agreed to come back and kind of... He, he's the perfect kind of like... Uh, you know, it's, it's basically like Donnie Brasco, except yeah, Donnie yeah. Brasco was a true story, and this is not really true, but the, yeah. the, it's, it's like historical fiction. Uh but he, then he, he he thinks he can do it, but he develops this huge conflict where he's like, you know, I care about these people even though they're criminals. And I don't think so much like Ed Harris, but he cares about Gary Ullman and then Robin Wright, who's the girl he had this his well, first yeah, love. Well, yeah, you know? And I think even by... Uh, in, the, in the neighborhood, you know, and it's also... You know, and I think by, you know, by the fact that he cares about them, he cares about Ed Harris because yeah. he's their, their older brother. So even by, even if he doesn't give a shit about Ed Harris only on a personal level, his, like, arresting or whatever of Ed Harris would affect the Robin Wright character and the Gary Oldman character. So, I mean, he really is kind of in a, in a rock and a, between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, um, and I think he, he finds that out very it's, quickly. It's a very subtle performance uh, by Sean Penn, who, who you know, is known for, you know, like you take, you, you look at him in Carlito's way, like he can deliver like a real, yeah. you know, I'm, I'll say over the top, only as, for lack of a better term, yeah. like I, you know, just like a more nuanced, you know, or just a bigger, yeah, you know, presence of a performance. He's very subtle in this. I wonder if it's like we said that since Sean Penn wasn't really that like the first leading man, you think of maybe he hadn't. This was he hadn't yet hit that yeah. that level of like you know dead man walking or something where he's feels like he can do these larger than life also parts. what's interesting you know we started talking about the director kind of briefly and just to uh i think for sleepover fans he'll be best known for his first fucking feature film was three o'clock high <laughs> which, unbelievable yeah it's like you can't really get a movie that's kind of like on, on the other end of the spectrum of this yeah he uh, also directed um the u2 live concert film uh, rattle and hum in 88 and, and then he did their music video for one he did a lot of music videos, so maybe you know. And he, then because uh, that's at the beginning when when Kevin uh, when uh, Sean Penn walks into the pub to meet Gary Oldman, there's like an obscure U two song. Yeah, it's yeah. not like the uh, the first U two U two song you'd think of. Yeah, yeah. And it's you know it's probably because he was well versed with U two. Uh, he did Heaven's Prisoner, I think it was called, yeah. in 1996, which would be known for sleepover fan you know fans because you see Terry Hatcher's boobs. <laughs> In that movie, God bless Terry. Hatcher. And then he did Teddy Parker. Uh, that short, that Punisher short from a couple years ago with, oh, with Thomas us, Jane. He did the Thomas Jane short. Yeah, Dirty Laundry. Oh, I he, love that. Um, and he did the he directed Gridiron Gang with uh, The Rock with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, which was an okay sports like football type movie. Um, he hasn't really directed a whole lot of stuff, but um, I just thought you know he's got a couple of credits there. Well, one you know Three O'clock High, such a, you would never imagine that that guy would. They do, this. do these two movies. That, that, I equate that enough with another Sean Penn, The Bad Boys. Yeah. Not Bad Boys, What You're Gonna Do, but yeah. Bad Boys, where they go to juvie. Rick Rosenthal, who did Halloween 2. Uh, freaking, that's a crazy... That, that th- Bad Boys and, and, and um, 
there's Bad Boys, Three O'clock High, and there's another movie whose name escapes me. That's like that. It's that Youth in Trouble movie, where at the end of the movie they take over the PTA meeting. You know, you know, it's like you know, uh, in California, and I think it's based off a true event. Or like you know, the people are meeting because our, our kids are rowdy, and they they like they lock the people in. Let to, it be. No. no, what's lean on me? No, not lean on me. <laughs> they no. do lock people in. Though. I know, no, that's different. No, we're, ta- we're not talking about uh, Morgan Freeman. It's it's uh, I classic. Think, it's classic like the movie. the defiant ones, or that's I mean that's a Sydney Portier movie. But there's a movie that I forget the name of the darn movie. I'm sure someone can listen to this. We can uh, add a link to well, what that movie's. No. But, but anyway, so as a director, I, uh, you know, one interesting uh, filmography there. But I, I was reading an, uh, an article in research for this movie and he talked about working with Sean Penn and Gary Oldman in scenes together was really difficult because of the working the way they work as actors is like almost polar opposite whereas Sean Penn he has to like warm up to it like so like Sean Penn by takes six seven eight nine like that's when he really finds the sweet spot. So he actually wants movie. to do multiple takes. Yeah, wow. according to yeah this director Phil Janow or whatever yeah. however he says that. So it was like, you know, for Sean Penn it was very much about like getting to the moment where he's great. Whereas Gary Oldman, he said, comes flying out of the box, yeah. like takes one, two, and three. That's it, and he's out of energy by that because he gives everything. So, well, you know, know, he comes, he comes f- like right out of the box. He's like, he's fucking, he's on fire. So it was like, he's like, it was a very weird. That's another thing uh, because you had to, you had to hold Gary Oldman back in the early takes. And then you had to push. And he had to push Sean Penn a little bit. A, so that, take four. So that they would, so that they would peak at the same moment. It's weird. That's another, since we're, since we're bringing up acting and philosophies, it, it's interesting the style of people who there's a, there's two different schools of thought there where there's like, you take like a Stanley Kubrick or uh, even the movie we're going to, we do next week that the director who, who stars and, and directs that would do multiple takes. Like Stanley Kubrick, they say for the shining would do like 40 takes just to get Jack Nicholson's smile a little more sinister. And I think there's a scene in the shining when, you know, he's so pissed off at uh, Shelley Duvall, and he's like, it's so fucking typical for you to do this for me. And then he, he storms out of the apartment. Uh, he looks right at the camera, and that's like the take Stanley Kubrick uses, you know. And then the other end of the spectrum, you have guys like uh, Jackie Gleason or Frank Sinatra, who learned it from Jackie Gleason, who's like, I'm only going to do one take, you know. And they know that that's going to be their best take. And, uh, you know, like you take a guy like Jackie Gleason who would not rehearse. He would go through and do... You know, uh, blocking, blocking of course, but he had a photographic memory, so he looked at the script once, would know every line. And, you know, in the 50s, when that whole, like, um, James Dean kind of Marlon Brando uh, acting phenomenon hit, James Dean was one of those guys who didn't want, didn't like to rehearse too much, didn't like to know his lines too well because he wanted to have it be fresh. So you have two different schools there where, you know, a Frank Sinatra or Jackie Gleason, you know, I don't think they necessarily sound like dicks where they're like, hey, you're only going to get one take out of me and then I'm walking back to my trailer. Or there's this, these guys, like a Sean Penn, who wants to do like freaking 10 or 20 takes. So it's, it's, it's weird yeah. that, you know, which way your, you know, your, uh, your, your, your feathers point, <laughs> you know, do you want to do one take or two well, takes? So or, those, you know, you know, I mean, you always got to do a safety. So you do yeah. one take, you get a safety just in case that one take you're technically. The camera. Yeah, something wrong happens know, with the camera. You problem with yeah, the camera. You know, you lose whatever. the film. So you always want to have a safety. You always want to have two takes. But then beyond that, like you're saying, there's, there's, there's actors who are, who 
they're only doing the first couple takes just as a rehearsal period, and they're warming up to do like four or five. So it's well, weird. yeah. There's, you, even, there's always that famous story about uh, Marathon Man. Yeah, where it's like oh, uh, with uh, yeah, I, I, Justin uh, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, I guess maybe it's the torture scene, but there's Dustin Hoffman's in a scene with uh, Lawrence Olivier and. Uh, he was supposed to have something. He was supposed, and, and he's like running around the set, getting all fucking like yeah. you know, like sweaty and getting all fucking riled up, and maybe fucking drinking or something. He's getting all around. Dustin Hoffman's like, uh, I mean, and uh, Lawrence Olivier is like, uh, that's why we call it acting, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, like you're supposed to act this way. You don't need to be that way. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's like a, totally. That's what we we're saying about the process. It's such an interesting thing because the fact that there are people that you know, teach specific methods, I find is, is I find like weird because it, it does seem like it's such a personal thing, a creative process. You can't like, everybody's different. Everybody well, it's, ha- like, it's like researching a role. Some people will like, yeah, I was embedded for two months or some yeah. people like, no, I just, you know, yeah, I, like, you know, I came you know, to me not, in a fucking you know, dream. But, <laughs> you know? I think we all love Bruce Campbell and we, but we wouldn't compare Bruce Campbell to Gary Oldman in terms of like acting jobs. But in Bruce Campbell's book, uh, if chins could kill, he talks about like, you know, actors that are very into the method. And he's like, for me, he's like, I'm working on Mind Warp, yeah, which is a movie that we covered really early on. Check out, check out our podcast about Mind, uh, Mind Warp. Warp. He's like, and he, and that is like, I'm forced to be like, I'm mining. You know, I'm in the, I'm in the trenches and underground. I'm, he's like, he's like, I didn't need to go work as a miner. You know, for a month, he's like, I'm there. I got my hands dirty. I'm digging shit. And he's like, I know what it feels like because I'm there and I'm doing it. Yeah. I think it becomes different when you talk about theater because theater, you're not literally in dirt, you know, digging or like you're not like running around in the ocean, you know. It's all more you in have, your head. You it's like to, a lot. You, you have to convey you, that you, to the audience. Yeah, so you do have to kind of internalize the way that feels and all that stuff. But in a movie, like, really in a movie, like, you're there, you're doing it. Yeah. You might be doing it 50 times in a row <laughs> yeah. or or whoever. So it's just, it's really... I think that's the hardest thing. I mean, you know, being a very, very amateur, you know, we, we've both acted in each other's movies or whatever. I think the hardest thing is trying to do multiple takes and doing the same thing more than once and not spoiling it. You know, yeah, that's yeah. the hardest thing, trying to be able to, you know... This movie reminded me a lot, since we keep bringing up that kid that we went to college. Doesn't this remind you of the movie we did? We did a, he His senior <laughs> film, he did a Coen Brothers short... Yeah, Ethan Cohen had written a short story. Like it was like as a play form, maybe in format. Yeah. And um, he dramatized it and he had us, uh, we were reacted in it. And it, it, this very much at the beginning of this movie when I was watching, I was like, this it feels and looks exactly like, you know, the, that movie. Yeah, we well, were in. The, it was the Queensboro, right, the Queensboro Bridge, I think, is where that. His movie opens too. Yeah, yeah. He it, and I sitting on park benches. We're yeah. both mob guys. <laughs> you know, it's very much. And, and you know, this this is like we talk about the era of these movies. Like this, very reminiscent, like Bad Lieutenant. You know, yeah. or, or there's a great movie that I don't think anybody knows that I've seen with uh, uh, Max von uh, Max von well, Max Maximilian Schell and Tim Roth called Little Odessa, which is another uh, New York mob movie. But it's about the Russians in, in yeah. the mid '90s, and it's like this this open this whole avenue of these films that you know. Yeah. It's so um, nostalgic for me. I said what I one of the things I liked about this movie. I think there are, I think there's a thing. Like I said, I would be interested to see. It's written by a playwright, yeah, who unfortunately died the same year that this movie came out. Oh, of really? St- of stomach cancer. Ugh. So this was like the last thing he really he had done. But he was like a, he was more of a playwright in New York in like the seventies and eighties and stuff. But he wrote this script, and I would be it would be interesting. To see if there is different, because like you can look if you wanted to get like 
critical. If you weren't again again like the whole dramatic structure shit. Like the Robin Wright Penn character, if you take her out of this movie, she doesn't really affect much yeah. other than like creating a conflict for him. Well, yeah, it's it's adding to the conflict. Because I think when it, she's intro- the, the, how it's set up is once her character's introduced, that's when he really starts having, he becomes conflicted. Yeah, he becomes conflicted. You know, because yeah. he's all right. He's, he's completely professional with, with dealing with Gary Ullman's character, yeah. his, his old best friend. But once she's brought into it, he's completely forgotten about her. She's moved, Robin Wright's moved away from the neighborhood to try to get. Yeah, she's trying to get away from it. Yeah, so she's moved up to like. She the, loves her brothers, but she despises their lifestyle. Yeah, in, in, the, in the, how the Irish are seen and that facet. So she's trying to, you know make a name for herself or be independent and not take money from them and like kind of like you know have to live off them so when she comes back i think this is when the, the confliction starts with, with yeah. both of them you know because she's like oh you know where have you been and then he's like you know i'm a cop well eventually he tells her that it's like, <laughs> like the first date you know and i found that very that was very sad too when he had to like because he gets hammered and it's like yeah is that right when they when spoiler when when um um I was going to say Nelson C. Riley, Charles Nelson Riley. When his character is killed, I find that to be a very, uh, very disturbing scene. I love how they shot yeah, that because yeah. they shoot that. He gets they, they slit his throat in a back alley, and uh, you know it's through the headlights. And I've always loved that yeah. uh, um, how they shot up that little vignette. But you know, I, I like that. There's a lot of honesty. I feel like in this, in this movie, like uh, you know. Um, them driving around and drinking all the time. I loved Gary Oldman's car, that big yeah, old yeah. boat, you know, and then, you know. Yeah. Well, I guess what, you know, one of the things I love, what I was going to say, one of the things I love about it, and it's the thing that, it's one of the things that I like about Donnie Brasco as well, which maybe it's because it's coming from, See, like, I'm the only one in the world that has a problem with Donnie Brasco. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, maybe it's because they're both, f- f- the reason why I like them is because they're both taking the point of view of, like, you know, an undercover cop type of thing is that like, I love one of the things I like, I appreciate about this movie is that it doesn't, it's not glorifying the lifestyle. No, I think it's reversed. I think it's actually, it's kind of like, um, you know, so many things I haven't seen that like, like as great as Goodfellas is, it does fucking, it glorifies the fuck out of that lifestyle. Yeah. In a way that you like, you know, you see what, Henry, how Henry Hill actually was like after that movie came out on fucking Stern or whatever, like, there's no like, start, like Henry Hill was not fucking really. Well, you know that's that's I <laughs> you think know what though, I mean. That was the word I was looking for for Scarface when I talked about the Scarface earlier yeah. on. Like the glorification of it really pissed me off. And I really like, um, uh, they they talk about it. I guess in that new Black Mass movie with the Johnny Depp playing Whitey Bulger oh, yeah, in yeah, Boston, yeah. they talk about the difference between the New York mafia and the Boston mafia, aside from being Italian and Irish. Or like, like you say in Donnie Brasco, you see that where they're breaking into fucking parking meters just <laughs> yeah, to get quarters. Yeah. You know, like the same thing up in Boston. It's like really, you know, all they're doing is they're they're in these gentlemen's clubs. You know, like you know, members only clubs in the dark all day, and it's not really like they're around girls. They're just chain smoking and hanging out. You know, and it's it's nice to have the realism of there's not kind of a glorify. I mean, you can glorify anything, yeah, but yeah. it's it's nice to have a semi-real. I mean. There's pluses and minuses, I think, to Goodfellas where, you know, they want to justify the lifestyle because of the money that was coming in and blah, blah, blah. But, like, in this movie here, it's like all they do is drink and they It seems like a really up. fucking shitty lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, it's sad. And they're not really that well off. I mean, Ed Harris, I think, you know, he moved out to Jersey in the movie, you know, to get away from it. So he's kind of made some more money. I mean, all he lives is he lives in, like, a freaking uh, you know, raised like ranch. Yeah. You know, but... Uh, you know, he what does he have a plot of land and he has a driveway as opposed to like living in an apartment. But like, you know, Gary Ullman certainly and I think his crew, 
you know, they're, they're, whatever money they're making, they're just pissing away drinking it, yeah. you know. But there's some elements uh, in this story that are true that, like we were talking about earlier, the historical things. That some of the, Like they said that the Westies used to do that with the severed hands. They would take severed hands and they'd put the... Uh, the, the you know the the fingerprints on the gun so if you you know if you had a gun or something and it was found it would have somebody else's prints and there's like a little little things that would really yeah. happen i love the burgess meredith scene i love you know i it was so sad because i felt like you know sean penn wanted to tell him yeah that it's like i'm a cop but he can't but you know burgess meredith is just so like you know like i'm eating out of a can i'm eating tomatoes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a great scene of course burgess meredith is great um but you it's know. another scene that almost feels like tacked on. Like we yeah. have to have him find out about John C. Riley somehow. Yeah, you don't what need to. Yeah, do? I mean, it's like it, it doesn't. It's not necessary, but it's just for me to as that character it, it, development it, where it's like he's more conflicted. Where British Meredith is like, you know, your father would be ashamed of yourself, but then he's like, well, fuck you. My father used to beat the shit out of me. You know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it also, you know, it adds. It gives a little bit more of a history. Of, yeah, of Sean Penn's yeah, character, ground, why he wanted to go away. And, it grounds it a little bit you know, more. Um, yeah, it's a great scene. I mean, we're just fucking Meredith, man. I you know, mean, and I always love that scene afterward where they, when he comes out of the car and Gary Oma's talking about He's like, yeah, so I go in on the floor, you know, I, he's got me. I think he's got me. And then I bite into his ear, you know. It's over in 0.2 seconds. It's like all the little things in this movie are pretty funny. I, the, only thing I, I, the only thing I wish was different about this movie is that as someone that lives in Hell's Kitchen, that there was more of Hell's Kitchen in it. Yeah. <laughs> like, one, not a whole lot of the movie actually takes place in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Um, and two, like, what does may not even, a lot of it may not be. I mean, you got the Intrepid. Yeah. Uh, that's it, pretty cool. Right on the West Side Highway there. Yeah. You know, I so, always thought that was awesome. So, that I mean, that's clearly there. And then how about when they're up on top at the beginning when Gary Ullman and them are drinking? That's clearly somewhere, but you can't tell where. Like, clearly you can see, like, the Empire State Building in the background. So you can get, like, a So you kind of know that it is probably in that neighborhood, yeah. but you don't really get, a, a like, a feeling of, like, where in the neighborhood it is. And they do venture out quite a bit. So, they're like, when they're at the cemetery that over there. Yeah, like, Queens. there's a lot of it just doesn't take place there. Like, yeah. they're down in, like, you know, little. Italy and their yeah, Mott is, Street. And, yeah. um, I would say where Burgess Meredith lives when it comes out, that if I had to guess, that's probably in the 30s. Yeah. Which would be Hell's Kitchen, but it's probably between like 9 and 10. It's or, really or, far or, out. or even 10, 11. Everything that's really recognizable as being like the west side of Midtown. Like with the like, New Yorker Hotel. It's all like, like Sean Penn, where he lives, that hotel, that's like on 12th Ave. That's on the west side highway. Yeah. Like that's a, as far west as you can get in Midtown. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know if it was just like zoning, but like they couldn't get closer to 9th Avenue and 8th Avenue for some reason and they just shot everything on like 10th and 11th and 12th yeah, Avenue. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question. But like the first, uh, you know, there's so many different bars and I found that, that got a little confusing because yeah. it's like there's just so many different bars that they're in. You're like, is this, this wait, is this the same bar as before? Some yeah. of, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. There's some bar that they go into where there's an elevated train. So that's clearly not Hell's Kitchen. That's, 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 in, the, like that's in the Bronx because they, um, I figured that out because they have to go, at the beginning of it, they start in the lower Bronx because it's still all the demolition of the, the South Bronx. So you remember where he kills yeah. that guy at the beginning. Um, I forget that actor's name that people would know. Um, his name is uh, Marco St. John, that guy. Uh, he, uh, Sean Penn kills a guy. To, kills Sean Penn kills John Turturro in front of this other guy at the beginning with blanks, but the other guy doesn't know that, so that he can have this rep 
So oh that, yeah, that was like the bowling. That was like the the pool hall, right? Is that what I'm thinking about? Uh, with the elevated train. Well, he what's his face goes back. Um, Ed Harris's bodyguard goes back to kill that guy oh, at the yeah, elevated yeah, train. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, to get the information, and so that's up. All the elevated train stuffs up in the Bronx because like a lot of elevated train stuffs up there. And then, yeah, when they're shaking down people like in in bars, with pool halls and stuff, you can't really tell where where they are. Um, and and, and it's it's interesting that it it does play on a really big thing that happened, and I didn't realize it was happening that early on. But like you know, in the seventies and eighties, we talk about. So much about New York. We did that in the in the uh, Weekend of Bernie's podcast. <laughs> Oddly enough, Weekend of Bernie's podcast became our cast about like film in New York. Yeah, about dirty New York and how. Well, because of, uh, by that point, in, in, in like because they play the jokes. Yeah, that's it, why it, we it talk about it. Becomes a parody, there. like in Crocodile Dundee and Weekend of Bernie's, that by the mid late eighties, like dirty New York is a joke. Like you know, uh, Jason, uh, Jason in New York. You know, Friday the yeah, Friday. Yeah. That's even a fucking joke that he's in New York. Yeah. So. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, like, you know, since the crime was bad and all that, there's a lot of people, like, if you had money and you scored yourself, like, an apartment or a building, you know, you're in, you're rich as hell right now in the sense of, like, yeah. you know, what you're sitting on. And as early as 1990, they were, they, they, it was, like, what is it, gentrification? It was yeah. happening, in, and that's the whole kind of underlying factor in this movie that was really happening in real life. Well, even, well, even Gary Moses, they don't even call it Hell's Kitchen anymore. They call it Clinton. Yeah, is that true that they call that it is, Clinton? That is, that's what it's called. It's really called Clinton now, not... Uh, yeah, Hell's Kitchen. And it's, yeah. and it's like, that's something that you see very much so 20 years later, like in the, in the, uh, in the early odds of 2000s, where everything is being, you know, uh, revitalized and they're just, you know, there, there's some sort of thing going on in the city where there may be some sort of administrations give, given a green light where these um, landlords can just jack up the rent for people like uh, bars, restaurants, whatever. And then if these people can't pay, this, this property or this establishment that's been there for 60, 70, 80 years will have to close, shut its doors. And then the landlord n- kicks everybody out of the place he sells the damn thing for for like a shitload of money the building gets knocked down they put up some sort of shitty sky rise that looks like it's from ikea well i was you know i was thinking about that and that's what they're dealing with in this movie you know uh, when we talked when we did the batman cast there's a lot of reference to older casts in this yeah (laughs) we talked about we're laying down a foundation you talked you talk a lot about how like uh, the design of gotham city was if they didn't have like that commission that figured out, yeah, how you know, to, like where you should put buildings, yeah, because, for for sunlight and all that, and yeah, which is it seems like nowadays, like you know, especially um, you know, I know my neighborhood more than I know better than I know the other neighborhoods in in the city. Obviously, it seems like a lot of that's going out the fucking window because there are a ton of like high rise apartment buildings going up like it used to be like the tallest buildings are in the center of yeah. Manhattan and then as you kind of go out they kind of get shorter and shorter because like you said when we did Batman if you put all these high rise buildings on like you know on the edges of Manhattan then they would block all the sunlight yeah. from hitting that the, was re- a real, the rest of that the was island. a real concern even what what was that that we did was it? Oh, it was even the Daredevil when we did the the trial for the Incredible oh, Hulk. Yeah, to, to, yeah. That was something they were talking about in the TV movie. They put a big building up, and now they have no sunlight, and it's like um, Kingpin. <laughs> Man, all, it's all linked. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all it's all linked, and this was a concern for people at the time. And they they and th- this is we talk about in the Batman cast. They outlawed high rises in Washington D.C., and that's why you don't get a, a a skyscraper or a building above like I don't know, say twenty or thirty stories in D.C. Aside from like the monuments or the obelisks, yeah. but here you know. Uh, this was an issue people are having now where, the, you, you know, people who've been living in a, in a neighborhood for, you know, 
maybe they've been there for generations, and now shit's getting torn down. And, yeah. and, and it's so probably even more relevant now. Than that's right. Yeah, yeah. It so it's then. it's striking that they're 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 dealing with this this uh, this issue back then where they're they're torching buildings to, as an fu to these people who were doing stuff. And that scene where Guillermo and Sean Penn did that, they really did that stunt themselves. Yeah. And they said it was very dangerous. They they lit the place on fire and they ran through the flames. You know, but it's 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 a uh, it's something going on now. And personally, I freaking hate it because I, I know. I f- well, even like McHale's. Oh, McHale's was an institution, which institution in Hell's Kitchen. On yeah, that Avenue. was in Money Train. That Wesley Snipes and um, uh, Woody Harrelson movie, and it also showed up in Sleepers. That's where the, the, they come out and they shoot the guy in the back. They sh- that's I think where they kill Kevin Bacon. That was in McHale's. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You haven't seen Sleepers. I'm so sorry. That was McHale's, and McHale's was like this institution of a bar and a great food and all that. And the you know the landlord jacked the rent up, and it'd been there for you know decades. And of course, uh, you know the, the the owner couldn't pay the, the exorbitant amount of rent. Then they went out of business, and then the landlord kicked everybody out, and he sold the building for a yeah. shitload of money. This and is now it's like Mikhail's like reopened. Yeah, but further I, north. I've heard that. It, I've never is it, it they are associated or. I don't know. There is a McHale's yeah, I've heard like that. a few blocks But north. it's like not the same. It's so sad. Like like where I come out of Grand Central every day, they're literally taking down a, a, a city block next to Grand Central. And the only reason why they got the green light because uh, the city, the private developer is going to help extend and make like a subway station because eventually, I mean, this is getting very in the weeds for people who don't live in the city. But, you know, if you take a train from Long Island to get to the city, you come into Penn Station. Nothing really comes into Grand Central. Amtrak goes into Penn Station, too. But Grand Central just services all the trains that go north to Connecticut or the Bronx or Westchester or upstate New York. So they're tr- they've been for decades now or for 10 years, they've been trying to build a tunnel so that people from Long Island, you can get direct access to Grand Central, have trains coming yeah. aside from just going to Penn because it's closer State. to Midtown. Yeah. You would, so it, would, it would cut off like uh, you know, 20 huge. minutes to a half an hour of commute for people. Yeah, they, they would just get off. The, they have a lot of issues with um, the LIR, Long Island Railroad, sharing the same track with Amtrak. And there's a lot of issues where Amtrak takes priority. So if there's shit going on or track work, the whole entire Long Island Railroad are, are stopped while Amtrak is going through. And that's because in the old days, you watch the old movies like, um, you know, North by Northwest or whatever. All the trains used to leave out of Grand Central. But then at some point in the 60s or 70s, they realized with the diesel engines, they had this soot. They didn't want the pollution in the, in the tunnels. So that's why you don't have any Amtrak. And that's the biggest thing. Like, you Even know, Carlito's that's Way. That's what I'm saying. That's the biggest thing about Carlito's Way is wrong is yeah, that yeah. he should have been leaving from uh, Penn Station because uh, there's no Amtraks coming into to Grand Central. But that's like, you but, know. But the more modern Penn Station is disgusting. Yeah. It's, <laughs> well, it was not. Well, they tore down Penn Station in the this big, get back to the 70s. They, were, they, were tor- they had this beautiful uh, big building. They tore it down to put uh, to, um, Madison Square Garden. It's disgusting now. It looks like a like a shitty strip mall that you know it's like yeah. a, you know and you can't tell where the place is it's just it's like walking through a shitty airport yeah. you know where Grand Central literally they were going to tear that sucker down and put apartments above it but Jackie Onassis uh, she came in and she you know petitioned and she saved it and there's a big plaque on the wall thanks to uh, Jackie Kennedy Onassis that this building is still here and I think a lot of people now regret you know 40 years later that they tore down freaking um, Penn yeah. Station that how beautiful that was so point being is next to Grand Central they're really tearing this entire block down and the developers are going to help help them give the money to finish this connection to Long Island. But, you know, these buildings have been there for like 100 years or whatever. They're so beautiful looking. And they're, they're putting up these like horrible looking, you know, they look like postmodern. They look like shoeboxes. You know, they're yeah, all like yeah. pieces of clear plastic. Literally, it looks like stuff you build out of Ikea. And they, they don't, 
look they look so out of place in the context of the neighborhood and you know i'm a big fan of like architecture and like the turn of the century the 20th century you know you look at the if you look up and you look at all like the facade and the crown molding and the work that goes on that really made these buildings and then you look as the century went on in the 20th century to like the end of the century what they're putting up now there's no kind of uh, thought that goes into like appearance of the building looking like aesthetically with any kind of ornamentary detail, you know. So yeah. now they're just coming up there. It's a pure functionality, and it just it's yeah. So well, I mean, for me, it's less about uh, you know less about appearance than more about just like Eyesore. institution. Yeah, you know, like the fact that all these places in New York City, like the what was the. The, there's, the hotel's still there. Edison. Yeah. There's this diner inside the Edison. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, all was the playwrights used to. Forever, you know? Yeah, and it's was, just like, all these things are closing. And it's like pretty And it's not because they're out of money. It's because people are greedy and the landlords are realizing that they can sell their buildings because they're, you know, the... the uh, uh, you know, land is a commodity in New York. And they realize that they could... Uh, they can sell and get a shitload of money. And so some developer <laughs> from, like, you know, another country will come in and put a high rise yeah, in yeah. well like you know? even uh, on ninth avenue we're talking about house kitchen they got the film center building yeah which is building you used to have you know back when f- people shot fucking film you yeah. know like for decades this was like processing what happened here for film processing all this stuff and there was lots of, of businesses in terms of you know agents and oh so this was big like it was like the place for if you're in the film industry in new york that's where this building was and it's still i believe still called the film center building but even when we were in college there was this crappy little diner yeah in the first floor of that that was so great and I don't even know when that closed, but it's like a juice bar. <laughs> but yeah. that closed like that closed like over a decade ago. It's but it's like we're just saying like state of grace is like that's all this shit that we're like we're dealing with now is like that's where it started yeah. right here. And then you see movie. like a lot of the pent up frustration that they're having the residents where it's like they don't have a say in it, I, you know. And it's it's you know I mean there's places you can you can argue this like say you take Harlem like you know uh, Harlem hit rock bottom and they could only go but up yeah, yeah. so now with the revitalization of Harlem it's nice that I mean I know a lot of the people who live there are mad that it's kind of gentrified but it's like you know it is helped crime rates and stuff like that so there's certain areas where it does benefit I hear Brooklyn now is freaking the most expensive place to live on earth it's bees knees man you know so it's, it's like a cool place yeah live. you know if, if you want to be a trendy hipster you move to freaking book brooklyn well, like, you know you know you can have brooklyn i got manhattan yeah yeah exactly i'm up in the uh <laughs> i'm up in westchester even you know i didn't even want to deal with this this the, the exorbitant uh, prices here but anyway so it's like a real it's a real problem that like you know folks have to deal with and it's sadly they don't really have the too gar- many gar- so early the garbage truck yeah, yeah the garbage trucks <laughs> going by everything <laughs> yeah get, pick it up um so uh, uh so the the I, I used to always love the scene where um Ed Harris has to go to meet with the mob the Italian mob and he's like if you don't hear from me by this oh, time yeah, yeah. you know go well, out it's the big like suspense scene. yeah it's like the it's really like the kind of like the scene in the movie. Yeah, yeah, and then you know he he so he tells Gary Oldman to, to get his guys, and he says if you don't hear, get a call from me by like two o'clock, I want you to come down and just you know light the place up with Uzis and all that. And uh, it's very funny. You're right. There's a lot of suspense in that because Sean Penn doesn't want to be involved, so Sean Penn is trying to tell Gary Oldman he heard him wrong. Yeah, and yeah. it's very funny because there's so many little jokes in the movie. Like when they meet him, they meet in Times Square. And they're like, you know, we're going to go down there. You know how to get down there? And Gary was like, yeah, yeah. You know, and then, then he's like, okay, you know, don't fuck it up. And he walks away. And then, like, right before they cut, Gary was like, who knows how to get the fuck on Mott Street? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of that. You know, a lot of these one-offs are like when, 
Ed Harris, when they go to his house in Jersey, and Ed Harris is like, hey, play with the kids. I want to talk to Sean Penn. And then Guillermo's like, you want to see my gun? You want to see my gun? You know, to the kids. So, but they get down there, and then, you know, uh, Sean Penn starts fucking with Gary Ullman, like, no, you heard it wrong. And it's like, it's very suspenseful. And I remember when, in, when I was in high school, like, a lot of those uh, t- movie T-shirts were really happening, and I kind of have an affinity for them. I like to wear, like, eclectic uh, T-shirts. And there was a T-shirt of them running down the... Uh, the street with you know Gary Ullman and his crew yeah, with yeah. like half, with the guns half out. I always thought that was such a cool T-shirt or a picture. Um, but that's cool. And then the, at the end, finally, like you get to the, it's it's kind of bookmarked because at the beginning of the movie you see like over shitty video close-ups. Yeah, yeah. I, probably intentionally, you see the St. Patty's Day parade. You know. Now, do you think it's supposed to? Do you think there's any kind of message that like this is giving us a clock like this? the movie starts around things like this has been a year's time or is it just like the the just setting up the I think Irish. it's a fo- I think it's a foreshadow of what's going to happen you know that yeah and I don't even know if this is an Irish is this a movie like Irish the Irish love because it's not it's very realistic I think you know I uh, when we you and I lived in Woodlawn which is right at the top of the Bronx where the Irish is like you know you walk into an Irish pub and this is exactly how they all are you know yeah, like, yeah. you know so it's very true to life but I wonder if like you're saying, it's not glorifying anything. So I don't know if this is something people look at. Like you know, this is how you're in the, you're <laughs> in the trenches here. You know, but yeah, yeah. Uh, at the end of the movie, you know, you have the whole Sean Penn goes to get revenge on, and then you have the do- the whole double cross with Gary Ullman, which is very. Did you see that coming? I always found that very sad. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think I saw that coming. Yeah, for sure. And then Sean Penn kind of blames himself because he was literally on the phone trying to get John Turturro over. <laughs> Over here, over to to the scene. Yeah, there. I mean, I think that's a little little conceived. Yeah, and he knows that there's something going down, and he's on a payphone. Yeah, you know, and like totally not paying attention yeah, before there were cell phones, knowing that yeah. it's going to happen. Every like, I understand that he would call and try to yeah, change. Like, it's just like he, literally once, once he realized that, like he had, you know, that it was going to take more than thirty seconds to be like, you have to tell him. You figured he'd be like, "Fuck this," and yeah, hang yeah, up, yeah. and then you know, watch what's going on. <laughs> But uh, yeah, totally. And of course, the, those those peers over there and the intrepid and whatnot, you know, the beautiful like. Uh, Which know, background. I think I think that peer. I, I don't know if it's a fictional peer or peer eighty four, whatever they meet on. I think that's also been revitalized, and that's like you know they have these beautiful carnival crews, these huge uh, cruise ships come in. Well, that, yeah, and that's the amazing thing. Like you know, um, you know, in the buildings I've lived in, I've always lived pretty high up. Yeah. In, when I lived in Hell's Kitchen. Um, and so you can always like look out to uh, the for for me I've never had like a when I where I used to live which was also in Hell's Kitchen I, my view from my window was north yeah but if you went out in the hallway and you were waiting for the elevator there was a big window and then you could look out west, west. to then see the water Hudson. and like a couple of years ago where like Sully oh. landed the plane yeah. in the Hudson River. If I was waiting for the elevator and just happened to be looking out, saw that. I would have I would have witnessed this plane. Yeah. Like, well, same thing with me in the water, like right like right in front of my building. He touched down on Forty Eighth Street, like in the water. So like my building is on Forty Eighth and Six. So when I'm on the twelfth floor, our our green room area looks out onto the to the high. It's so funny because sometimes they'll have a big old cruise ship park there, yeah. and you'll see. The bridge is level to us. Yeah. So you'll see this bridge, and you're like, oh, look at that. It's a cruise ship. And then you may come back in an hour, and it's gone. So it's yeah. like, it's it just like, okay. But, like, literally where that plane touched down, he probably would have touched water, like, 
where my building was. Yeah. Because then he ended up like passing the the intrepid. Yeah. And stuff. Um, so, but you look out the water and you see like there's Jersey and it's really just, it's just the Hudson river. Yeah. And it's like, you would never imagine that it's fucking that deep. Yeah, I mean, of is. course it is that deep because they have the, the Lincoln tunnel goes yeah. under fucking, you know, under it. And there's boats that go over the fucking Lincoln tunnel. But it's like, you look out and you see these giant fucking cruise ships like coming in and parked. And of course the intrepid is a aircraft carrier. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the biggest thing at the time was when they would do transatlantic, um, you know, uh, that was the uh, the mode of transportation to get everybody over here prior to airplanes. New York was the biggest hub, so you'd have, like, the Titanic was supposed to come to New York and all yeah, these big it's ships. Just, it's, a, it's, a, the Cunards, it's amazing. You know, when you look out Queen the Mary's, window at it, you would never imagine that it's these big, big enough. Yeah, it's, it's deep enough to I go. I mean, that these cruise ships are like my... They're like my building, just like knocked over on their side. Yeah. It's, it's like they're they're an apartment building, basically. Yeah, they're like forty stories. And you can high. only imagine how deep it goes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The Hudson. That's one of the beautiful things about the Hudson is that it's so Cause deep. Because for as much of the like, you know, like with the, the the iceberg of the Titanic, you only you see this much of it. How much of the boat yeah, is 90, underwater? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So the Hudson is unique. It's, it's also the reason why they're able to build all the skyscrapers on this island of Manhattan because it's all bed. The bedrock is so yeah. solid. You know, they don't have to worry about. Um, you know, have you know, have pouring concrete like say the Japanese did with that freaking airport. They poured, they made a, a man-made island of, in Japan to, uh, off the coast to, to lay this airport, and they filled it with concrete, and the freaking thing sinking. So every year they have to like adjust because it's you know it's fucking sinking. But yeah, New York, yeah. you don't have to worry about because of the the bedrock that stabilizes it all. Got and the, and got the sun streaming. Yeah, now, now the sun, <laughs> the sun's coming through. You know that top window you have in the in the in the in the basement where you have you know. <laughs> That glass when the sun's up now, so it's Jesus. It's, it's got to be past six in the morning. Uh, it's, it, it's, that, it's that bright morning sun, um, and so the Hudson River is so deep that they've, they're able to. You know, that's when they used to be able to. You, I think the Hudson goes all the way up, like to like Albany, or you know, oh, yeah. you can get up yeah, there. You know, you so the, you the get those Erie big Canal ships up there. Yeah, you can get. You know, that's how they get everything. It's amazing that you can get like freaking to like the Mississippi theoretically. <laughs> like if you can go through the stuff, you know. And I guess the Veranzano is tall enough. Yeah. They made the Ver- Veranzano, the GW, and also the Tappan Zee, which go over the west side, yeah. tall enough so these these big boats can go underneath. Um, but so this uh, the culminates. The whole reason why we did this movie was because it culminates on St. Patty's yeah, Day. Yeah, and there's this big shootout at the time, at, at, at the end of the movie. And I, when I was little, I thought this shootout was amazing. Because I was, I'm, I'm tr- like watching. Let's say I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, where is that? Because also, if you look... Oh, where the shootout is? Yeah, like, where's the... Oh, because he's walking up... At the end of the movie, he's walking up an avenue, and I can't tell what avenue he's walking That's up. That's what I mean. It's like, I don't even know where a lot of... You know... The, I guess the, he's coming downtown there's because a he shot, staying at her place. There's the shot that mimics... When he first shows up at that bar. Yeah. Because that's the bar that he shows up with at to meet... Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman yeah. for the first time. I mean, and and they, that's the bar that Gary Oldman the, the guy out of. They do the shot where it's like the cup front of the bar, and then it kind of pans to, like, across the street... To uh, or or the dollies or something, but they do that shot again. It's like they mimic that same exact shot because that's the bar that he goes in for the spoiler alert, big shootout. So I'm trying to see what's in behind, and I'm in my mind seeing what's back there. I'm thinking it's either like around Eighth or Ninth Avenue. 49th Street, but so much of it looks so different. I don't know if it just looks so different because it's been fucking almost twenty or twenty some years or whatever, or if it's just that like. It's weird, but then it's like they do that shot, and it it pans past the the bar to him standing there, and then he. But then when he walks across the street, he's walking across a different, completely different street. 
Yeah. And I'm thinking that that might actually be up at like 52nd Street around a like uh, between 10 and 11. Well, and there is a little Irish bar there. And I'm wondering if that's actually the bar because I can kind of see a building that looks like CBS's building. Yeah. In the background, when he actually crosses the street, well, because she works, she works on Park Avenue at a hotel, and you could see there's a shot where he goes in the meter at her. She works like as a receptionist at like a hotel, um, and you could see like the MetLife Building in Grand yeah, Central, yeah. and and she works north of that. So I guess her apartment must be around there because when he then walks back, doesn't he walk across the parade? And the parade goes up Fifth Avenue. Yeah. So he goes across the parade. And he must go, and then you know he's going. He goes over an avenue, so he's walking down. He goes over to, and he ends at the west side, and he walks in. And he has this fucking awesome shootout, and just how it's. I mean, I think nowadays, you know, we've seen this a thousand times, but back in the day when I saw this, it's like you never. They do a really cool cutting, the sequence. It must have been like a, a directorial decision where, like, you know, you have like all the sound stops, uh, like music, and it's just all the. Uh, well, then no, because then. The, the, like the Ennio Morricone stops, and then you bring up the 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 sound of the parade, which like the bagpipes and all yeah. the all that great sound of the parade and the drums and all that, and it's in so the shootout is intercut with the parade and the guys flipping their mallets around. They hit the dr- drum and all that fucking awesome, and the girls with the batons, <laughs> and and it's just so cool how it's like the just big shootout and like y- all you hear is like the. You know, like the gun, and you yeah, see like the, yeah. you see the entrance and the exit wounds, and you see, and it's really just like brutal. And then, well, you kind of hear the gunshots, but then the sounds of like the actual impacts are very not the typical sounds that you hear in movies. Yeah, which I, was very interesting because it was like it, you, the kid gets shot in the hand. Yeah, and it's just like it's, it's like, like you, yeah, yeah, you hear like, like skin flap. <laughs> yes, yeah, so and then like and then a lot of like wherever the it's what's cool is wherever the 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 stray bullets are hitting. You hear all that very loud. So, like when the jukebox blows up, or when they just kill all the st- the, the all the uh, bottles behind the bar get hit, and people are getting shot, and it's just it's just like you know, and you hear like cartridges hitting the floor, and they're reloading, and they're getting. I mean, he. I mean, do you think John uh, Sean Penn survives, or do you think he just maybe is either is he passing out from his wounds behind the bar, or does he end up just you know expiring? I don't know. I think you he know? survives it. But that's you know that's you bring it up and it's like that's another thing that I find very interesting. And maybe you'll have a spin on it that makes sense to me. Like I and as as a cop, like I don't understand why he goes in there to do this by himself. <laughs> like well, I understand like he's now he's he's in it. Ed Harris is gonna is wants him killed, you know. Like it's, I guess it could be. I like, think it's I'm just gonna, a vendetta. It's, it's the neighborhood. I'm gonna take care of it. They killed Gary Oldman. They killed fucking John C. Riley. I think like, it's yeah. I think he's you know he. But it just he it seems really odd that he would like. He doesn't want him to. Uh, he doesn't want him to end up you know going to jail because I think he felt like that the John Turturro representing the the law kind of um, let him down by vicariously making him not be there when Gary Ullman died. So he kind of makes a decision when he goes to Gary Ullman's wake. He, he, he gives freaking Ed Harris his badge and walks yeah, out, yeah. which I think is a great little scene. He's like, you know, you're a fucking idiot. He, you know, he shows him the Boston badge. But he goes there, like, you know, it's almost like it's a Western. Yeah. You know, he's going to, you know, it's like it's like Derry, Dirty Harry. You know, his career is over at this point. So he's going to, it's an eye for an eye. You know, uh, it's his fault Gary Ullman died. It's his fault Gary Ullman was put in this position because of, Sean Penn's decision to go and become an undercover cop. He kind of caused all this. Uh, it's Ed Harris's fault. This is happening with the death, which, as well as 
you know, Sean Penn could have maybe jump-started, but at the same time, you're right, John C. Riley, it's his fault that John C. Riley died, it's his fault Gary Oman died, everything, so he's going to go settle it himself. And, uh, you know, who knows if they'll get off or not in the courts, but at this point I think he thinks his career is over, you know, and he's going to just go take and care given of himself. The, and given that, he's also, like, not even really possibly, arguably, not even really wanting to survive this shoot. Yeah, exactly. I don't think he feels like there's any kind of future left. And, you know, and it's and it's it's a very personal vendetta because it's not like just people he met the course of the film. It's it's his family almost. Yeah. So it's, he's got it's something he's got to take care of himself and he wipes the entire gang out. And, you know, and uh, I've always just found that that last gunfight so awesome. And then at the end when Ed Harris comes out and then, you know, the shootout and, uh you know, why is he waiting to shoot? And it's like, you know, he's waiting, waiting, waiting. And then Ed Harris's Beretta fucking you know, slides back empty. And then he just takes that one shot, like three feet away. And it's so beautiful, that headshot where you see the fucking red mist <laughs> come out. I've always loved that. And then, and then Ed Harris, how he falls. It's just so great. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I always thought that was so cool. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's an impressive scene, you know, especially for 1990. Like I said, I think into the 90s when you have the glorification of violence with the Matrix movies and all that, I think we've seen this a thousand times. Yeah. But it's so cool to see it in this kind of a movie. Well, that's definitely there's a grittiness to it that isn't in you know. something like The Matrix for sure. Like he's fired and then that guy comes down the stairs. Yeah. Oh, with the he shotgun? doesn't even see him and he fucking shoots <laughs> Yeah, shoots him in the fucking. You know, there's a lot of like, and, it's, it, and the, the actors, to, to their credit, a lot of them look brutal. like they really got killed. I mean, like, there's that that guy on the when he gets the guy gets shot on the stairs. The guy Sean Penn doesn't see him. The guy shoots. He hits Sean Penn, and he like smiles the guy because he shot Sean Penn, and Sean Penn shoots him twice, and he, and and that guy just fucking falls to the floor. It looks like he got killed. <laughs> I mean, like, just to look well, at I've his never face. seen it. I haven't seen it anything since. So, <laughs> so um, uh, you know, and then we talk about when the movie came out. I mean, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got an 84% rating. Which uh, is good. Yeah, it's great out of 100. Yeah. You know, a lot of movies don't get that. Uh, a lot of movies that did a lot better in the box office or whatever. Yeah, don't, don't get that. Um, people, critics, um, this, this woman, Janet, uh, Malson from New York times, she, she praised Gary Oman. She said he was phenomenal in it. Not since Sid and Nancy had he taken a string of, uh, of different, uh, dr- dramatic identities and done accents. He's stunning in this, uh, Roger Ebert said his performance was amazing in it. Uh, so it got very well received critically, but it just fell by the wayside, sadly. And, uh, you know, I saw it because like I said, it was, um, because uh, I was on a Gary Oman kick, and uh, I don't know, you know, if, if it's if it's remembered or it's forgotten. I, I, I have f- no idea. I feel like the, our uh, audience. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> our audience and our, our listeners will know the movie because they they there's a lot of stuff in the weeds that we put up on on the Facebook page. They're like, yes, yeah, I remember yeah. that. So I think this is definitely, and I also think this is fitting as our like entry into. You know, we could have done a Goodfellas. We could have did, you know, one of those. We could have did Donnie Brasco. But um, something like this or like a, uh, I don't know, like like a Carlito's Way or like a Scarface is like fitting because it's not what you would expect. You know, it's one of those... You know, we talked to, you know, I was alluding to earlier, like the idea of like what exactly is a sleepover movie. And if you're going to categorize this, you know, in a sleepover movie, this is the kind of movie that... um, in the context of the show, I think I have a definition, a different definition. But if you are going to categorize it as like a sleepover movie, this is the kind of movie that like circa 1992, 94, 
You rented. You would walk. Your, you would walk into a video store, <laughs> uh, and you'd see it. Even if you never heard of it, you're like, oh, like this is a good cast or whatever. Like you know that we were signed at that age. We were very into you know this kind of movie. So yeah. it's definitely it's, a, it's certainly a video store movie. Oh yeah. If it's not, and a that's sleepover, how I saw it. It was <laughs> if it's not a sleepover movie, it's certainly a video store. Yeah. Movie. I mean, I saw it at a sleepover for sure. Um, and you know, honorable mention to um, who I thought played a really good mo- a role in this movie too is R. D. Call. He played Pat Nicholson, um, Ed um, Ed Harris's henchman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he was great, and, it's, and he's a guy that you see a lot in uh, in films. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I dug it. Um, t- what, what's your rating system here with bucket of pizzas, which uh, we dis- discovered is pretty. Even if you give one <laughs> out of five bucket of pizzas, depends on how you look at it. You know, yeah. uh, that's a lot of pizza. There's still a lot of pizza, but you if know. you're just going by buckets, you know, it's a different. Uh, yeah, if we're trying to feed the homeless here, I don't know. I'd give it. Uh, like I said, I wish I had seen it, like, at the age that you were when you saw it. Because I feel like I'd have, you know, so much of this show is about nostalgia. And so not having any nostalgia but for we're good, it. But we're very good here about putting our nostalgia caps on and watching stuff in context. Be sure, sure. I mean, I'd say, I don't know, three Yeah. for me, you know. I, and it's funny, because had you asked me yesterday, I probably, or, you know... Now it, is, it feels like it is yesterday. Like when we watched it, I probably yeah. if you asked me like right after we watched it, I would be like, yeah, two. Yeah. But now, like after we kind of talked about it, and it's I, fun. it has a little time to like sink in. Yeah, and it's it's, it's it, percolating. It, it, <laughs> I, 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 it upped it a whole extra bucket. <laughs> That's interesting. That's uh, I talked you up a bucket. <laughs> I'd say yeah, me myself, I would give it three, three, three point five. I think it's a good solid gangster movie. It's certainly not your run of the mill. I like how it's about the Irish mob, which is cool. It's not really, you know, it's not doing the classical um, cliché Italian mob. I like it's one of the movies I think it's honorably to mention that they name the title appears in dialogue in the movie. When I was little, I think um, I think uh, I was I had a weird fascination for a summer when I was little, right when it came out of Maximum Overdrive. And there's a scene in Maximum Overdrive where I think the girl is talking to Emilio Estevez, and she says like, "It's like the world." suddenly went into maximum overdrive. And I said, wow. And then I started watching. And, and for me, I thought for a time being is, I don't know if this is true, but every title has to be in the movie. You know, so I used to, there was a time where I used to try to find the title, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, I, then, yeah. and then that's forgotten. I've forgotten. I haven't thought about that like in two decades. But then this movie, when, when they're in the church and, he, and Sean Penn's like, I feel like you're in some sort of state of grace. And I was like, whoa, there's the title. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, Sweet. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I give it a little credit because they, they work the title. Because sometimes the title even, even in the fucking movie. Punch drunk love. Where the fuck is that? <laughs> God damn it, yeah. it needs to be in there. Yeah, Batman. Somewhere. Where's Batman in the title? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Dark Knight Begins, or Batman Begins. So, yeah. So, 3, 3.5, I think. Uh, again, like we said, Ed Harris, fucking awesome. Gary Ullman, Love fucking Ed awesome. Harris. Love Gary Ullman. Uh, you know, Sean Penn, uh, I could take him or leave him, but uh, he's, he's great. Got he will, you know, it's a tough part. It's yeah. a much uh, less forgiving part, or not forgiving, but like... Uh, He's holding everything together, I think. Yeah. And if you don't believe it's, him... It's like an underappreciated part that yeah. he's got to play, as opposed to, like, Gary Oldman gets to... Yeah, ham it up and do, like, wild. throw a gun, you yeah. know, pretending like he's shooting the <laughs> that MDU see in the background, you know? He gets... He has, yeah, he has, there's a lot of stuff. He's he's really... There's a lot of scenes where you got This is definitely a movie you keep your eye on Gary, because Gary's doing he gets, with his greasy he, hair. He gets to do it, whereas Sean Penn, I think, has to. 
he has to be the counterbalance yeah. to like the craziness that is that is Gary Oldman's character. He's got to be the yeah. other side. So it's a le- it is less forgiving. I'll go with that. I'm going to stick yeah. with that word. It's you like, know. <laughs> and it's uh, it's certainly for me a movie that opens up this forgotten genre of all these you know '90s B movie gangster movies, <coughs> like we said, like you know I guess King of New York, Little Odessa, fucking Bad Lieutenant. Romeo is bleeding. You know, that's another movie I fucking love. Romeo is yeah. bleeding. That's a great. Have you seen Romeo is bleeding? Yeah, I think you showed yeah, it to yeah, me. That's that's a good we've movie. watched it together. Yeah, that's another movie that's forgotten. And that's a whole slew of people who are in that. It's like, oh my god, it's it's Ron Perlman cameos in it. It's like cause there's tons of people in that movie. But another great Leo Gary movie. Owen, is she the woman in that movie? She's the hitman, or is she the his his wife? I don't know. There's a ton of people, and I love the ending of that fucking movie. So great. Sometimes she stays a little longer. I cry at the end of that movie every if time. If you uh, have not seen State of Grace and you've listened to this, I apologize because I don't think you're going to know what the fuck we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we also apologize that we've ruined it for you. because. But hopefully you would have listened to us. We did warn you. We yeah, did give you a fair exactly. warning. So. This one was a little, I think this cast was a little bit, it was a little bit, uh. All over the place. Yeah, because I mean, uh, we're talking about freaking gentrification and, and architecture and... Uh, well, you know, it's like I said, it, I, I kind of warned everybody that it was going to be a different kind of cast because it's a different kind of movie than yeah. we have been doing. So it's, you yeah. know... Um, we're supposed to do recommendations, but I completely forgot to prepare one for well, this. I would just say professional, sure. I would say Romeo's Bleeding. Yeah, yeah, if you know, haven't seen... Gary, Gary Oldman double feature. <laughs> triple feature. Triple feature gonna, right there. If you're going to do this... That's, that's a formidable double, well, triple feature right there. They're, uh, they're all New York movies, right? Yeah, they all are New York movies, and they're very different Gary Oldman performances. Um, two, two of them playing a cop. So, how would you do it? How would you before we have to wrap this up because uh, I can smell the coffee already <laughs> brewing uh, f- from your parents upstairs? I how don't would know. you? What's the order? You Maybe do the best order would just be chronologically. So you say the progression? Of yeah, that? it'd be this movie. Then I think Romeo's Bleeding is before the Professional. I feel like Romeo's Bleeding would be something we might get to, but I feel like The Professional at some point will have we'll to We'll definitely do The Professional. You know, Leon. The professional is in the, like, the Tombstone category of, yeah. like, movies that were, like, yeah, the, that, the original glue that kind of stuck us together yeah. <laughs> as friends. That's funny, that movie. That's good, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. So we'll, I'll have to save that. I think we'll definitely get to The Professional. Yeah. Romeo's Bleeding would be an interesting choice, but yeah. I think The Professional is probably definitely more likely that we'll get to. Yeah. Oh, Roy Scheider's in freaking... Oh, yeah, Romeo's Romeo Bleeding. There's tons of people well, in we that. do a Roy Scheider fest. Yeah. I remember Romeo's Bleeding got nominated MTV. The last time I watched like the MTV Music Awards, that, that got nominated for like most violent scene. Remember when um, he, he, he gets fucked up in that movie, and he, he, he like... Remember, he gets his coat, toe cut off, and, and, then, and then she's sitting on his toe, and he punches, knocks her out, <laughs> sucker punches her, puts her in the backseat of that, that Lincoln Continental, and they're driving down the street, and, and, and she fucking is handcuffed behind it, takes her legs and starts trying yeah, to strangle yeah, him, yeah, yeah. and then he just blow, he blows right into a freaking, uh, 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 what do you call that, uh, 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 a light? What do you call those? A street light? Yeah. And knocks himself out. She gets out of the car, kicks the guy, and runs with the bat. That's fucking great. That was like the action sequence. So, yeah, Romeo's Bleeding in the Professional. Good recommendations. Hey, check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. Check, us, check out our, our actual uh, site, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We like to promote the site because we have a lot of extras on the site uh, that you don't get from the Facebook page or this podcast. Um, Which is funny because I noticed, like, on Stitcher and stuff. Yeah. Like, it cut all because, all because you list that stuff in the descriptions. Yeah. Like, the RS feed, like... 
it'll describe it like all in the paragraph. It'll be like, this is the film clip from that we talked about. Oh, geez. All that's, all all that's in there? All that's in the description of like the Stitcher yeah, description. Yeah, but you can't click there's on no it. there's no link. Yeah, yeah. You got to go to the website and, and check it out. For whatever aggregate you get our stuff from, you got to go to the uh, our, go to our website. We're all over the place. We're in like every major uh, like, directory now. Yeah, iTunes I've noticed and all Player FM ones. and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, check us out. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, like our stuff. Email us or, or I mean, message us. Uh, like, like, retweet our stuff. Um, next week, we have a great movie coming out, which is similar in a weird way to this movie, but not so much so. <laughs> same so year. Let's, that's a little tease. Well, same year. Un, un, co- completely coincidental. It's the same year, and I don't think it really played any and it's also just because we talked about like maybe this one didn't do so good because it didn't get promoted yeah whereas like that one we talked about how it didn't do so good because it got promoted too much yeah the next week's <laughs> the movie too yeah. much money was spent on promotion yeah it's weird it's interesting it's, it's, a, it's a weird avenue to go down so but thank you very much uh, we'll see you in two weeks and like I said just uh, keep patronizing our stuff thank you for listening and uh, I've got Scored Death coming out in a couple of months Blake's got his book Shame coming out in a couple book. months that's, that's very exciting uh uh, he's going to go on the road in his little uh, road. Airstream uh, <laughs> trailer. He's going to go around the road, sign and stuff. He'll come to your house and have dinner if you buy his book. It'll be very exciting. I don't know how much you're going to want him to stay over for, but... <laughs> <laughs> you talk about you, it. You can go now. Okay. All Take right. care. Later. <laughs> <laughs>